Put your little hand in mine There ain't no hill or mountain We can't climb hey. Good morning, everyone. Up and Adam. Time to head out the door and drag yourself to work. Hey, and don't forget to bundle up because it's cold outside. Almost as cold as my house. <laughs> but, uh, you know, here's some news that while it won't warm me up, it'll certainly cheer me up. It's Groundhog Day. What do you think, Cole? Early spring or six more weeks of winter? I'm thinking six more weeks of winter this year. Really? That's surprising because I feel like it's spring already. Well, that's it's going to fool you. Really? See, the winter's going to come out of nowhere and grab you just when you least expect it. Okay. Well, as we mentioned, it is Groundhog Day, February 2nd, and Punxsutawney Phil is over there. He may or may not see his shadow. I don't know if they've already done the, this they ceremony. They did it. He saw his shadow. <gasps> Six more weeks of winter. Oh, man. Actually, Told you so. That's a good thing. Granted, he's More not snow? very he's not very good at the forecast. Do you have uh, some stats on that? Um, let's see here. Since 18, 1887. So, okay. so not not a lot of stats, really. And not the same groundhog. Oh, right. R- really? <clears throat> they rotate. Oh, okay. The designated fills, as it says. Yeah. Have forecast more weeks of winter, a total of 103 times, and in early spring, only 18 times. He's often... Incorrect, as it says. So they don't have the exact wow. number. But in recent, say, the last 20 years, he's about 50-50. See, that's not bad. He's getting... No, because you could just flip a coin and get the same results. So but he's not he's, very good at all. He's getting better with age, even though they're different ground He dogs. needs some Doppler radar. There you go. Something really to for... I mean, I think the farmer's almanac is more accurate than he is. So. <laughs> but six weeks out, what kind of Doppler is going to give you... Th- I mean, I got my 10-day forecast, maybe. But... I don't know. I'm not here to decide science. You go figure it out. He's a <laughs> well, groundhog. He has resources. Have you seen the party they put on for him? That poor I, Holy cow. I Roden. have. The person in this room that has seen the party is me. From Pennsylvania, right. From cool. half an hour away from Punxsutawney. Oh, that's we would so go, exciting. See, I know that he's forecasted it by now because by now it's 9 o'clock in Pennsylvania. Oh, yeah. I heard and it. And I wake up early that morning. When I drove in, somebody cut live or to a recording or something. Mm-hmm. Like, How often have right. you been? Um, or how often? In high school, I went the couple years that I could drive. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, we'd go before so school and then get back in time for school. Did it seem the same year after year? No. <laughs> it is an exciting new thing. Okay. Every time. Nothing's repetitive. Really? Nothing will be the same every hour. Okay. Every day when you wake up. That almost sounds every like song a, from Sunny and Cher. It almost sounds like a tease for the remainder of the show. Anyway, we will be talking about Groundhog Day throughout the show, uh, the day and the movie starring Bill Murray. And uh, I should mention this is Jeff Simpson covering for Dr. Matt, who is not feeling well. He's got the man flu again. But, you know, that's just my theory. He's got a genetic flaw. You know what it is? It's karma. Is that what it is? Yesterday, he teased me relentlessly about the heat in my house being off. And he said, hey, if you want to bring your kids over to my house, you can come and get warm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm and I warned him not to make such promises. Right. Because now he's going to go, oh, I'm sick. You may not want to bring the kids over. Yeah. See? Oh, that's a good point. It's just an excuse. But I'm thinking because he did that, his heat went out and he got a case of the sniffles. Could be. Okay. All things are possible. <laughs> well, Terry, other than Groundhog Day, what other headlines do we have for today? 
in his, as it says, all too typical early morning tweet storm. Uh, I'm assuming this is Punxsutawney Phil. Yes. Okay. Uh, no. President Trump criticized the FBI and the Department of Justice for politicizing the sacred investigative process. Whoa. Is the investigative process sacred? I, it depends on if it's in your favor. True. <laughs> True. Because he wrote, the top leadership and investigators of the FBI and the Justice Department have politicized the sacred investigative process in favor of Democrats and against Republicans, something which would have been unthinkable just a short time ago. He added, rank and file are great people. I can see why he would say that and why many people might think that, just because, you know, a lot of Because there's, Democrats... there's a memo that's been written to show that, not necessarily backed up by facts apparently sure I mean, it's just it's whoever's in the white house the other party is going to do whatever they can to hinder the other party there is one complication with this memo reports have many in the white house concerned that the memo will be a dud and hmm. fall and fail to be the significant as it's being sold as and not live up to the expectations with the online efforts of hashtag release the memo hope it to be It'll come out and be like, that's it? That's what we're... Yeah. Hasn't that been the case of every effort to get rid of Trump? Well, yeah. And every effort involving any of this presidency, by the end of it, you're like, what? That's it? Yeah. This is all we're... Uh." Yeah. Um, So if the document is not significant, then is it worth the president burning down the relationship between the White House, the intelligence community, and the FBI? You need a a working relationship, What's one more relationship? Trump may be sacrificing... Any sort of relationship with the current FBI director, Christopher uh, Ray, because he's just constantly throwing that organization under the bus. Yesterday, a uh, the, the FBI – there's an organization of FBI agents, kind of a national group, and they mm-hmm. came out and supported the FBI director and all this. So the memo may be released today. Okay. It may not. Well, they shouldn't release it. Inter- well, the thing is they, they you, on Fridays at like 5 p.m. Eastern, they, they do this sort of – just sort of a document dump. Here's a bunch of stuff. And the problem okay. in there is a bunch of – usually a normal administration releases it, and then there's like some controversial stuff. They'll fire somebody. They'll change a policy. But then no one has any time to actually look at it because it's the weekend. Yeah. Nobody cares. They better not do it today. I don't want them to steal Phil's thunder. If it was that important, you'd release it on Thursday, so you spend all day on Friday stewing over it. Yeah, but, but that's what you do when you want to release bad news. You tell them on Friday. Right. The good news is hashtag memo day is already trending on Twitter. There you go. Hey. People are excited <laughs> about it. Russia has warned its citizens against traveling abroad, saying the United States is now hunting for Russians to arrest across the world. In a statement from the Russian Foreign Ministry, Russian citizens were warned about the real threat of being detained by U.S. law enforcement. Despite our calls to establish cooperation between the relevant authorities of Russia and the United States, U.S. intelligence services continue to actually hunt for Russians around the world. The ministry claims 10 Russian citizens were arrested at Washington's request while traveling in 2017 and warns that Russians face biased treatment in the United States judicial system. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that that's not true. I don't know. Have you ever watched an 80s or 90s movie involving Russians? They're always <gasps> evil. Have. They're always evil. <laughs> but I lived there for two years, and I, I didn't meet any evil people. Except for the Hunt for Red October that had that one shifty guy in charge. And all of a sudden, we got a secret mm-hmm. sub out of it. That was a pretty uh-huh. cool movie. Actually, the whole story apparently was built around some sort of naval destroyer, a big ship. But was that guy a real so, Russian, or was he just a fake Russian like Sean He was Conway? a guy with a British accent, and ha- like... 
I, in that movie, I didn't enjoy how they zoomed in. They're all speaking Russian, and they zoom in, and it's like we had this universal translator, and everyone speaks English. I'm like, what? <laughs> As a kid, that confused me. But, you yeah. know, I'm getting sidetracked. You didn't <laughs> have to read anymore. That well, was a good That's <laughs> Yeah. Well, I did. I read the book. It's a good book. Uh, National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster and others in the White House are growing frustrated at what they see as the Pentagon's reluctance to provide President Trump with plans to attack North Korea. Hmm. The side of the New York Times. McMaster report, reportedly argues that the Trump uh, Trump's threats for fire and fury to be credible and has to have military options uh, with, from what they call a bloody nose strike, which is just something minor, something yeah. to get their attention. Yeah. Uh, to, or it's uh, also a medical condition, too. Right. Or to attempting to take out North Korea's entire uh, nuclear arsenal. The Pentagon, the Times says, fears giving the president too many options could increase the odds that he'll actually use those options. Oh. He'll act upon them. Hmm. Tensions have bubbled up with the news that Trump dropped his nomination of Victor Cha to be ambassador to South Korea because Cha says he pushed hard against a military strike against North Korea. Interesting. So you put up an ambassador. He's not really big on let's attack them, and so you're not going to have him as your ambassador. But if he's if he's not on board with your policies, then why put him in as ambassador, right? That's a great point. Does he just want to have that option on the table then? Yeah, but the Pentagon's like, if we put that on the table, he may use it. Yeah. Do we want to even give him the option? Hmm. Just distract him. Yeah, I guess. And finally, when a diehard Philadelphia Eagles fan woke up groggy from a recent dental surgery, she had one big fear. Uh Uh-oh. Did I miss the Super Bowl? Ah. (laughs) Holly Park's father posted a video on Facebook this week showing her coming out of the anesthesia after having her wisdom teeth removed. When her mom let her know the game was Sunday, Parks asked if she could go. She says the team is like my sister's. Kind of a weird comment. Mm, yeah. And they'd better win because she wants to go to a parade and that she is sad for injured quarterback Carson Wentz. He's been injured for weeks. Why are you sad now? But she said his faith in uh, St. Nick, Eagles quarterback Nick Foles. Okay. Uh, the video has been viewed more than a mil- She's basically uh, delirious on coming out yeah, of it's, anesthesia. It's not supposed to make sense if you've <laughs> ever seen someone after wisdom teeth surgery. Stream of... Unconsciousness. Yeah. If, you, sure. if you want, if you want millions and millions of viewers on your YouTube page, just yeah. video yourself after the dentist, right? Like so many other or, people, or your done. kids, or whoever. Oh, sure. Yeah, See, that's why I was so disappointed with my wisdom teeth experience. I mean, sure, they took out my wisdom teeth, but I didn't get that fun, delirious, crazy talk out of myself whenever I oh, did. Yeah. I feel I, like I missed out. I want my money back. You wanted to be loopy. Okay. See, and I have all my wisdom teeth except for a couple of years, about a year and a half ago, my wisdom, one of my wisdom tooth broke. Really? I I was eating a chip and it just crushed because inside, I guess it was all had a cavity in it. Uh Uh-huh. So it it broke. I go to the dentist and he sends me to the orthopedic surgeon because I guess a dentist can't take care of that. Mm -hmm. Shows up and the surgeon's like, would you like anesthesia or should we just give you like a local and just deaden the area? And I said, well... What's the difference? And he told me like a price instead of like the physical. <laughs> I went, oh, all right. Just dead in the area. The I cheap mean. one. <laughs> and so he dead in the area. And at first he goes in and starts yanking on it with the pliers. And I'm like, ah, you know, because he's trying to yank something out of my head. Sure. And he goes, huh, I guess we need some more. And I went, yeah, apparently. So he dead in the area. 
then you get that you know, like your jaw you can't feel it and everything yeah and so he's yanking on it and he's bust i was mad because i kind of wanted that experience of coming out of anesthesia and instead i just got a slack jaw out of it oh and you know and i'm like I, mopping up my face because i'm drooling all over because you can't control it anymore what makes it worse is since you didn't have them removed you didn't have the wonderful experience of having to Put wet paper towels in your mouth. Well, I did with the one. Oh, okay. But for the you, weekend, was, you didn't get to use the little plastic syringe filled with water to I clean out your your gum the, holes. The one tooth. Oh, you did. But no, did I got you the whole get experience. to eat Jello and no. ice cream the whole weekend? No, I had to stay away from go. anything crunchy. So you did miss out. I did miss out, mm-hmm. and I have three of the four still. You know what? I kind of feel like I didn't get the full experience because I was fine. I didn't take any pain medication. I could have driven myself home from the dentist office. And I think I was out that same night eating tacos. Oh, wow. Not hard shell tacos. Of course not. But, you know, carne asada, soft shelled. But, uh, yeah. Okay. It was not bad. Wisdom teeth. I thought you were going to say that she woke up and feared that all of her teeth were gone. No, she was worried about the game. Oh, my teeth missing is like a quarter of all of my dreams. That and falling down an elevator shaft is probably half. And then the other quarter is trying to run and not being able to or trying to uh, fly by getting a running head start. If only kind of just Dr. Matt off the was here yeah. to psychoanalyze. Oh, he just psychoanalyzed my dream the other day. I think it was the teeth. Hmm. Well, he said I needed to floss more. But um, then he says it's like it's, you know, a symptom of marriage problems because that's where he always goes. And really? he wants to bring you in and he's just trying to turn it into a, a counseling moment. He just wanted my business. Well, that too. <laughs> Speaking of business, he's got a he's got a date night coming up. Yeah, he does. Sold out date night around Valentine's Day. Yeah. Have you been to one of those yet? I have not. Why? Matt, if he were here right now, he would say, don't See, you care about your I, marriage? I spend a lot of time with that guy. That is a good point. And the weekend is that break where you get to do something else. See, and that to is go a... hang out with the same person again, Sure, we spend 15 hours. And that's just during the show. Yeah, it's just can't, no. Yeah. No, no offense, but okay. I'm good. All right. Well, other than Wisdom Teeth and Groundhog Day and Date Nights, what else were we talking about today? When I was a kid, I did a a, a report on Alcatraz. Oh, I love Alcatraz. The island. And there was, back in the 60s, there were a couple, there were three inmates that escaped. Right. They jumped in. They Mm -hmm. swam across the bay. They were never found. People assumed they drowned. The sharks got them. Whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Someone stepped up this week saying it was, they're one of the survivors. What? How noble of them. Come on. So it says, it's one of America's greatest unsolved mysteries. Did three inmates who famously escaped from Alcatraz prison in 1962 survive? And if they did, what became of them? Now we're learning that one of those three prisoners may have survived and could have been hiding out in Seattle for several years. It's a great place to be. A letter allegedly written by one of the escapees, John England, has been sent to the San Francisco Police Department and and forced the FBI to reopen the case. Isn't it always open? Wouldn't he want to stay hidden? Well, listen, my name is John Anglin, reads the letter, I escaped from Alcatraz in 1962. Yes, we made it that night, but barely. According to the letter, John Anglin survived in Seattle for most of his life and also spent eight years in North Dakota. He would have been in his 80s by now. It is believed the three inmates spent months digging a tunnel out of their cells using sharpened spoons. 
The men made an inflatable raft out of raincoats, set off into the water sometime that night, and were never seen again. For years, it was supposed that the trio could not have survived after escaping into the chilly, churning waters of the San Francisco Bay. Hmm. But some now say it's possible the trio survived the swim from Rocky Alcatraz. Personally, as someone who swims in the bay, and we have a triathlon that goes every year, and there's not a single person that doesn't make the swim, says a former FBI agent. So, I mean, people swim it, but I mean, these people are, you know, quality swimmers. Trained not, to What swim. about the sharks, though? They're not always out there. They're hmm. not, you know, they're not always hunting. They're looking for seals. Okay. You know, they make, oh, maybe. that's horrible. The writer of the letter says he is the only of the three escapees who's still alive. He claims fellow escapee Frank Morris died in 2008, and Charlie, Charlie, or Clarence Anglin died in uh, 2011. The three were sent to Alcatraz for robbing a bank. The letter writer goes on to say he will reveal his location if police promise he won't go to jail for more than a year and he can get the <laughs> medical attention he needs for his cancer. Oh. So he's looking for, you know, the uh, health benefit, I guess, when you're in jail, they'll just treat your disease. And I, hope, that. I hope they agree to this because I want them to meet up with this guy to find out if it's really, truly him. So the letter was sent to the police in 2013, but was not revealed to the public until recently. Um, even his family was never told about the letter's existence. The FBI says tests to find out if the letter is legitimate came back inconclusive. Interesting. Do you think this is really the guy? I don't know. Be, Part, it'd be great if it was. I mean, he did know Clint Eastwood's name from the movie Escape from Alcatraz. That well, was one of the... Mm, <laughs> the three guys that are in history books. <laughs> Interesting. Huh. I I would like to believe that it's him. It makes for the better story. It's better if they survive rather than they died, right? Then you had someone who escaped the rock. Oh, but uh, the other part of me wants it to be still a mystery. Hmm. You know? I don't know. It's like every good horror movie, until you reveal it, it's scary. But once you reveal what actually happens or who, what the face of the killer is or whatever it is, then it kind of goes downhill from there. With this, it's better to stay a mystery. It's better to be in the legends and to the folklore. And... I <laughs> hope that he is like Sean Connery and has long gray hair and the FBI hires him to, uh, you know, work. They He works with the FBI mm-hmm. to... Help them figure out how to catch other criminals. Wouldn't that be great? That would be the great ending well, to this story. Well, he is 80. Yeah. With cancer. Sean Connery was old in well, the movie The Rock. Not 80. Maybe, mm. maybe by 80 you just don't care anymore. You just okay. want your cancer treated. Right. Just fix my cancer. Mm-hmm. Do either of you find this weird that uh, in that movie Escape from Alcatraz, you find yourself rooting for these criminals to escape. Like, oh, are they really going to get away with it? And then after the movie's over, you realize, hey, wait a second. You didn't go to Alcatraz unless you were a really bad person. Oh, yeah. You did some really bad things. I'm rooting for this uh, ruthless criminal mm-hmm. to escape and wreak havoc upon San Francisco or it sounds like, what was it? North North Dakota. Car- North North Dakota. Dakota. <laughs> At least yeah. in Shawshank, he's an innocent man, right? That's He's the only innocent guy in Shawshank, so you can root for him to get out. That's true. That's true. Um, I don't know that this guy ever claimed he was innocent, though, did right. he? Right. Okay. No, I, I don't think so. All right. Anyway, that story makes me happy, which is interesting because we're going to be speaking with our next guest uh, about happiness and where we can find it. You might be able to find it in an unlikely place. His name is John Leland, and uh, we'll get to that interview when we return. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. Our guest today is John Leland, and John Leland set out on behalf of the New York Times to meet members of America's fastest-growing age group, those 85 years old and older. And over the course of a year, he interviewed six people expecting to find challenges, loneliness, and deterioration of body, mind, and quality of life. And what John Leland found took him by surprise. And as I said, he's here with us today to discuss the experience and his book, Happiness is a Choice You Make. John, welcome to The Matt Townsend Show. Oh, Jeff, thanks so much for having me. Now, John, I don't know if you were just listening to the show before this interview started, but we uh, we told the story of a guy who's claiming to be one of the gentlemen that escaped from Alcatraz. And I'm just wondering, you didn't happen to interview him because he's in his 80s. Uh, no. <laughs> All, none of my folks had spent much time in prison, although one had spent a night in jail on an obscenity charge. An obscenity charge? Yes. Interesting. For, for showing an avant-garde movie. And uh, during the course of the, this began as a year-long New York Times series. And after one of the articles, the prosecutor who had prosecuted him on this uh, got in touch with me because he wanted to apologize to uh, the filmmaker Jonas Meckes. Interesting. Oh, wow. That's, that would be a whole other interesting interview, too, to see how many prosecutors feel sorry for some of the, for the sentences that they've helped carry out. But uh, I, I'm curious to know what sparked this project, and, and tell us a little bit about this project. It was a year-long project. Yeah, it began with just that little demographic, little datum that you, you mentioned, that the people age 85 and over are one of the fastest-growing age groups in the country. And uh, so I just set out to see, well, this age group, you know, we've never had so many older people before, and uh, what's life like for them? And I expected it to be what I thought about old age, which is your mind falls apart, your body falls apart, your teeth go bad, you can't see anymore, uh, you're alone and depressed. And uh, I found, actually, almost all the problems that I set out for, but what I found was that even though uh, people often had hardships in their lives, None of them defined themselves by these hardships. Only other people did that. They all lived for the things they could still do and accepted that there were things that they couldn't do anymore. That is so interesting because it, it seems like as you get older, you gain more perspective. And I'm, I'm just thinking about my own life, the older I get, and which is not that old. But uh, I just think, man, those things that I was worried about before earlier in my life, those were not big issues in hindsight. And so it seems like some of them had similar a uh, similar mindset. Yeah, they did. They were things, you know, nobody wants to give up those things. No one wants to lose their their husband of 50 years or or not be able to get around like they used to. But it, what some one man told me is that, you know, life has been, you know, a reaction to my circumstances for the last 90 years and it's just going to be more of that now. Yeah. Do you did you feel like they were more optimistic, more positive. What were some of the, the positive things that they had to say about where they were currently at in life? Well, uh, there was one woman, a, a Chinese woman from Hong Kong, and she said that she, when she, she lived on $700 a month. Her name was Ping Wong, and she lived in a, in a building, a subsidized building, and so she couldn't afford her pain medication, so she had to, like, tear her lidocaine patches in half for her joints. But at the same time, 
she was much more comfortable than she'd been when she was younger, and she was working a very difficult job and making a very difficult commute to it, and at the end of that, having to take care of a family. So now she had leisure, she had friends she could spend time with, she loved to play mahjong every day. And so, you know, you ask her, she said, oh, you know, when you get old, you have to make yourself happy, otherwise you get older. And that kind of attitude, uh, you know, permeated the six people I spent the time with. Yeah. I, and I hope this doesn't sound like a silly question, but it, it feels like whenever I say my age out loud, I feel I feel old. Or it seems like I'm old, but I don't feel like I'm that age. Did you did you experience that with these people? Do they do they feel like even though they're that particular age, whether it's 85, 90, they didn't feel that age? Uh, one of the characters, Jonas Meckes, who is the avant-garde filmmaker who was arrested that I mentioned before, he turned 95 on Christmas Eve. Wow. And, and when I talked to him the other day, he said, in my mind, I feel like I am 27. <laughs> but in my body, maybe 63. Oh, my goodness. Think about it to give that year. And uh, some felt, you know, they felt every bit as old as they were, and they Others were, there was one man, Fred Jones, he was shocked to see himself in the mirror and see that he had gray hair. Yeah. That's got to be so interesting to to not be able to reconcile the two, the two different feelings of, I feel this young, but my body's telling me that I'm this old. <laughs> well, the, I think people could deal with the body telling them that, that they did not particularly care for society telling them that. And, yeah. you know, going out and being kind of invisible in society and... People try to avoid getting behind them at the cashier at the supermarket because they think they're going to be slow. Oh, they yeah. want to engage with them because they don't want to hear the problems of an old person. Instead of saying, Jesus, this person's lived 90 years, I wonder what I could learn from that person. Yeah, that is definitely a better way to look at it. I, I'm curious to know, so clearly uh, some of these people that you interviewed have optimism, and I, I'm curious to know, as far as... The rest of us, you know, some I, I would think a lot of people would like to live to that age, especially if they don't have a lot of these problems uh, that a lot of old people do have. But how can we get to that point to where we are 85, 90, and we are more optimistic than we've ever been? Well, it's, it's the same thing whether you're 45 or 85. How do you have a rich life? What does a rich life look, for, look like? Uh, you know, is it making as much money as you, want, you can. And that might be the case. And then you say, well, at 85, I need to spend all my time making money now. Or it might be having a sense of purpose or having close friends around me. The, the wonderful thing about imagining what a good life looks like at 85 is that it can help point you in a direction that makes your life much better and richer right now, not just when you're 85. Yeah. Do you feel like... Younger people have more problems, or older people have more problems, or is it all just perspective? Everybody's got problems. Uh, there's a, a wonderful explanation by a woman named Laura Carstensen, who runs the Longevity Center at Stanford, and she says that older people and younger people view the time in front of them differently, and they live accordingly. Young people have a long time in front of them, so there's a lot of things to worry about. Older people have a short time in front of them, so they can sort of concentrate their energies on things that give them pleasure now. 
the people that you met with, do you, did you sense or did they share with you any regrets that they may have had over their lifetime? Or for the most part, did they seem like they led fulfilling lives? It, it's a great question. I would often in the course of my time with them, and it's been really about three years now, uh, I would often ask them what their biggest regret was in life. And some of them would just say, you know, I can't have regrets. That's just like a waste of my time. And nobody expressed a real regret. One man said that there was an incident of bigotry, I think by one of his teachers, and he didn't uh, speak up about it. And he regretted that. But for the most part, they were, they were largely without regrets. That is so interesting that it wasn't anything that he caused on his part, but it was that inaction that he felt guilty about. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's what you would think, right? I my regret. I can tell you a million regrets. All things I did, not things that. Sure. Yeah. Things I didn't do. John, it's interesting. It's interesting because we're we celebrate Groundhog Day today, and which you know, of course, is about the Bill. uh, We we think of the Bill Murray movie, where it's it's actually kind of a philosophical look on life, you know, because. We go throughout our day each and every day, and so many of the things are the same exact routine over and over and over, even the conversations that we have with people. Um, did you did you talk to them at all about what they did to make the most out of each and every day? Because I would, I would assume that that's something that, that uh, you could come away with talking to these people is, I need to make the most out of every single day. Yeah, and, and almost that was barely even a topic of conversation because it was the conversation you know wow it was that was the 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 whole that was the ocean in which we were swimming making the most of your day look this could be the end tomorrow i could be uh you know incapacitated everybody was afraid of that being incapacitated uh almost to a person they weren't afraid of death they were afraid of dying but not death but uh you know you never knew when it was going to happen. And you, you had an idea that it, it would probably not be that long in the future. Yeah. Uh, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with John Leland, who is a reporter from the New York Times. He's also an author, the author of the book, Happiness is a Choice You Make. And uh, John, why don't you talk to us more about that title, Happiness is a Choice You Make? I assume this is something that you gleaned from these interviews with these individuals. It's what I learned from them, and it's the first really overarching lesson I learned, that happiness, you couldn't wait for happiness to come from your circumstances or for all your troubles to be fixed, because you're always going to have troubles, and your circumstances are going to go up and down. So to, to be happy, you had to choose that from within yourself. And Happiness isn't, uh, one of the men says, you know, happiness isn't that new fur coat or that new car when you get it. Are you happy now? Happiness is what's happening right now. Right. And, and he was a guy who was living a tough life. He lived in a walk-up apartment and was in the process of lo- losing parts of two toes to an infection that was turning into gangrene. So that's not an easy life. But, he, you know, he was so full, so clear about what happiness was. And when I asked him his favorite part of the day, he would just say, waking up in the morning and saying, thank God for another day. On right. my way to 110. I thought, okay, Fred, you can do it. I can do it. <laughs> John, I'm curious to know, because obviously you've had a really positive experience with these six individuals. I'm curious to know how this, uh, I guess you could call it a study, how this study 
has affected your life and your perspective of aging? Oh, it's entirely for the better. Well before I started writing the book, I wrote the words, happiness is a choice you make, on a little sheet of paper, and I taped it up by the side of my bed so it would be the first thing I saw in the morning and the last thing I saw before I went to bed. And it just kept me so focused. I'm like, I'm not going to feel sorry for myself. I'm not going to waste any time uh, being in fights with people I don't need to be in a fight with. I'm not going to worry about things that haven't happened. When they, I'll worry about them when they happen. And it's been such an uplifting experience. And you hear me today, I don't sound like the grumpiest guy in the world. <laughs> but had we talked a couple of years ago, you might have been like, geez, what's the matter with that guy? Yeah. Uh, he's got a chip on his shoulder. And I was just, you know, I watched these people and the things that they, the struggles that they overcame, and I thought, geez, I have no excuse not to do that. Right. And that's, you bring up a good point, you know, because it seems like when we go out of our way to help someone else, or when we get a clear picture of the struggles that somebody else is going through, we we sort of have that moment of, oh, I guess the problems that I'm going through right now are not that bad in comparison. You know what? If, if you want to feel good, uh, uh, don't buy yourself that $10 present. Give that $10 to somebody who needs it, and I guarantee you that'll make you feel better. Oh, that is such great advice. I'm curious to know if you feel like you conducted a similar experiment but with younger people, what sort of uh, findings do you think you would have? I think more anxiety, because younger people, there's so much time in front of them. What do you know? Uh, you know, is the country going to collapse? Is, are you ever going to find, you know, depending on what age you are, you know, are you ever going to find that someone to love and who will love you back? Are you going to find that career or that work path or that sense of purpose that will drive you through this world? So I... You know, I have some of these anxieties myself, a lot of them, and, and I'm 58 um, and happen to have a job that I absolutely love and, and, a, and a partner that I absolutely love. But, you know, those anxieties are such a part of our life when the future is so, so big that we can't see it. It's, it's natural to have anxieties about it. And it's so frustrating because, as you mentioned earlier, I think so many people that are of a younger generation have that mindset of, oh, I, I have got to converse with this older person or I've got to stand behind this older person at the grocery store and not realizing that not only is there so much uh, wisdom there, but there's more perspective. There are people there that can tell them, like, look, the things that you're going through right now are trivial. The things that you're going through right now, they're not going to matter 20, 30 years from now. Right. And we hear that, and we, it, it sort of goes in one ear and, and out another. And a wonderful thing about spending all this time with the older people is not hearing it going in one ear, but seeing it play out in real life day after day after day. So, you know, I'm so grateful to these, these people. You know, I, all of my grandparents are deceased, but before one of them passed away, I had the chance to just sit down and basically interview him and just talk about his life. And it really uplifted me to sit down and, and hear the story of how he met and fell in love with my grandma. And it was just such a positive experience. It, it seems like uh, more people of a younger generation should be doing this. Oh, I envy you that experience. Uh, my grandparents were all dead by the time I was three years old, so I never had that. I had a little bit of it with my, my former wife's 
grandfather who was a total character. <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, to have that positive experience and then uh, to think, you know, my other grandfather passed away when I was one. So I never met him, never knew him. And to think about the questions that I would love to ask him. Oh, fascinating. What would you ask him? Um, I, I would probably ask him, you know, I that experience that my other grandfather had uh, telling me about how he met and fell in love with his wife. I think I'd like to hear that from him, too. I, I just think they're, those are such positive experiences. And to just see the smiles come across their face even after all those years, you know. Oh, you have a reporter on We're Incorrigible. I can't help asking you questions. (laughs) No, that's great. I, You know, I'd probably want to know, because I'm so fascinated with what life was like back in the 50s and 60s, and sometimes I wish I would have lived during that time. So I'd probably ask him, you know, what are things that you did for fun back then? What were some of the challenges that you had? What, uh, What were some of the conveniences that you had that you enjoy? Oh, that's great. I love asking people what their first home was. Oh, yeah. People start, you know, they, these are people that built their first homes, lived through the Depression and built their first home. They were frugal, and they, their circumstances were almost all, you know, modest or fairly modest. And it was just starting out, and, boy, you didn't, you know, you didn't live foolishly the way some of us do today. Yeah. Well, John, just in closing here, I'm, I'm hoping that you can leave us with some tips or ideas for whether you're young, what you can do to have that optimism when you're older or even now. And if you're older, what you can do to uh, to share some of these positive insights that uh, the people that you studied had. Well, one of the people uh, has a, a tape to his wall. I told you about me having this happiness as a choice. Right. To my wall. One of them has tape to his wall. Keep smiling, keep dancing, have a good drink, and do not get too serious. Okay. <laughs> that's and fantastic. That's, that's pretty good words to live by. Yeah. How do you do that? Yeah. Well, John, we really appreciate your time here on the Matt Townsend Show. His name is John Leland, and he's a reporter for the Metro section of the New York Times, where he wrote a year-long series that became the basis for Happiness is a Choice You Make. And uh, he's also the author of two previous books, Hip, The History, and Why Kuriak Matters. And the lessons on the road, they're not what you think. So, John, once again, thank you for being with us on the Matt Townsend Show. We're going to take a break. When we return, we are going to continue the discussion and the fun on Groundhog Day here on the Matt Townsend Show. Townsend Show. You know, America seems to be saving energy, and Terry South is here to talk to us more about it. And I'm wondering, Terry, when you say we're saving energy, do you mean like uh, I'm just going to take the elevator instead of walking up the stairs? Save um, my energy? No. Okay. This would be other energy, okay. not your energy. You're an energy, you just need a sand, but you're fine. It's, you know, <laughs> electricity, basically. Americans are saving energy because they don't go outside as much anymore. Yeah. Sounds about right. Which is counterintuitive because if you're inside, you're using energy. Aren't you using energy? You're, I mean, you're sure. watching TV. You're on your phone. I mean, people aren't in their homes like reading a book. I mean, come on. 
if they are, they're using energy to do it on a Kindle. They're, you know, uh, That's one of those things where I'm always like, why don't I just read a book? Now, this, now I'll finish off this Netflix series. The survey numbers from uh, 2012, like, apparently that's the latest accurate uh, numbers they have. But it says Americans in 2012 spent an extra eight days at home compared to 2003. Hmm. Right, So being at home means using more energy by keeping the lights on and watching TV, but it also means less travel. It means fewer people are outside operating offices and stores. So overall in 2012, we saved uh, 1,700 trillion British thermal units, or as you, you, you see on your electric bill or whatever, they're called BTUs, huh. uh, of heat, or 118 or 1.8% of the national total, according to an analysis published in this journal, Juul, which is... Uh, you know, something that no one reads. Uh, so about that much energy is uh, Kentucky produced that much energy in oil all of 2015. Oh, wow. So they yeah. saved a state's worth of oil by everyone just, you know, staying home, watching TV. I wonder if it's a, a finances thing because I feel like we would probably go out and do more things if we had more money. I think it's just lack of motivation to leave the house. Maybe it's our phones. Think, Maybe our I, phones are to blame. I think we've made it such a enjoyable experience, right? You can watch TV. You can have your phone. You have Wi-Fi and everything. It's such an enjoyable experience. Why would you want to leave? Sure. I mean, I I would used to love the idea of going to say a, a sporting event, going to basketball or football. I don't want to do that anymore. Watching mm. it at home is such a better experience than actually going to the game because you can see what happened. You know, there's there's all the and then my fridge. With That's the true. Food that I enjoy is right there. I don't the have hot to, dogs don't cost you ten dollars when they're right over in the other room. You don't have five hundred people in front of you every time you move. You don't it's have wonderful. to use a crowded restroom that has uh, troughs. Right, and this, I I clean that. I under I can I know where it's been type of thing. Right, sure. so it all it all works into this better experience to just not go anywhere. Hmm. Specifically, in twenty twelve, Americans spent one less day traveling, one week less in buildings other than their homes when compared to a decade earlier. The trend of staying indoors is especially strong for those between the ages of 18 and 24. The youth spent 70% more time at home than the general population. At the other end of the age spectrum, those 65 and older were the only group that spent more time outside the home compared to 2003. Next, the researchers want to look at energy consumption changes in other countries as a result of lifestyle changes, see if that's a global phenomenon or is that just us Turning into couch potatoes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I'm going to do my part to save energy by, uh, you know, taking the elevator. Yeah. So if you're if someone in your home complains that you're spending too much time on the couch, just say you're doing it for the environment. Oh, sure. As they say, it's tricky to pinpoint the exact reasons for the changes, but the authors suggest it's a combination of remote work, so working from home. Yeah. Apparently a lot of people do that. Yep. Um, services like streaming video, online shopping, with the rise of flexible work from home privileges, and then computers essentially at home. Uh, there seems to be fewer and fewer reasons to venture outside the front door, but scientists have long said that spending time outdoors is good for us, and then the rest of the article guilts you for not going outside. So, You know what's sad is you just used a phrase that I realize is not a part of my life right now. Guilt? No, oh. you said the outdoors. Sitting, you said like laying down on the couch, and it's like, what is that? Really, you, you don't lay down on the couch? I was like, I was just thinking, when was the last time I sat or laid down on the couch? Hmm. 
And it's been a while. Rece- Yesterday. Recently, <laughs> I've incorporated a 30-minute sort of attempt at a nap. Okay. Just put everything away and just lay there. Yeah. For 30 minutes just to try to, I don't know. Usually I pass out for 10, 15 minutes and then I wake up and go on with my day. But just a chance to, I don't know, not read something, not be on my phone or computer. Yeah. And then just maybe a chance maybe to take a nap. We we get a short, we get shorter on hours on sleep. Yeah. So I'm trying to catch up here and there, especially on Fridays because I'd like to stay up a little later. Oh, yeah, because you want to watch all the shows that well, your wife doesn't watch with you. Right. She doesn't yeah. seem to care about, you know, anything with a superhero in it. I'm like, well, okay, <gasps> fine. I'll wait. We'll watch that later. And and just – and I just my, – my family's up later on the weekends. I don't want to just crash out at 930 like I've done. And so I tried to get a nap in the afternoon and extends the evening a little bit. And uh, by doing that um, – I don't think it's changed anything in my life, but it's relaxing to hang out on the couch. Now, I, I'm interested to hear more about this nap thing. Is it's, this like a spontaneous thing or is it planned? I just let it happen. I don't think really? about it. So I, I have like the TV's on. I'm just laying there and I'll, I'll either pass out so or it, I'll, I'll just you know wake up. I set an alarm because I don't want to go too long with this. I have things to accomplish. So it's, a, it's an organic Falling asleep. Mm, yes. It sounds amazing. You try not to stress about it. Just let it happen. If it happens, great. If not, you're, you didn't need a nap, apparently. I am the type of person that if I try to schedule a nap, it's not going to happen because hmm. I'm thinking about it too much. Where, as you said, if it just happens, yeah. it happens and it's great. I just I've, There's a point where I just shut the computer off because I'm looking at things, trying to – a lot of stuff with the podcast later in the afternoon. OK, that's done. And then I just lay down on the couch and just wait. And sometimes it's wonderful. Sometimes it's mm. – I do hate the you don't get enough. And so when you wake up, you're groggy. Yeah, you're I've never been able around. to do the half hour yeah. kind of thing because yesterday I took one of these spontaneous nap type things right. and it went on for three and a half hours. There See, it's go. almost worse if you get too much sleep. Eh. No? I, it huh. felt good. So okay. you have to kind of see where you're at because it's different for everyone. But if you can work that in, little they call them power naps. I'm not okay. sure that really the great greatest word sure. for it. But it could help to, to lengthen your day, make you feel better in the afternoon. Well, we're going to take a quick power nap right now. And uh, when we return, we'll continue the fun here on the Matt Townsend Show. to do a little empty news right now, and I, I chose this story because uh, it makes me hungry. And who doesn't love a donut? Apparently everybody does. A North Carolina man who made headlines when he was caught for break-ins after winning a donut-eating contest has been arrested again, and this time he's accused of stealing from a donut shop. Hmm. Logical. 27-year-old Bradley Hardison of Elizabeth City was charged Tuesday with stealing from a Dunkin' Donuts in November. An Elizabeth City Police Department statement says he's charged with felonies, including breaking and entering and larceny. It wasn't clear if he helped himself to any donuts. But uh, local newspapers reported that in 2014, Hardison won a donut eating contest put on by Elizabeth City Police while he was wanted on suspicion of several break-ins. Two mm. questions. Okay. One, how many donuts does it take to eat 
how many donuts to does win? it take to win a donut eating contest? It's a great question. Because w- if it's one more than the second place guy, if it's That's more a great than about four, I don't think I can do it. <laughs> really? No, you you don't even think of it as eating it. It's just kind of shoving it in your mouth and letting it cram its way down your throat. But then you don't get yeah. to enjoy the donut part. You're not supposed it. to. It's a contest. But yeah. enjoy donuts. the donut after you're done trying okay. to. Come on, it's a competition. That's when you go and steal the donuts yeah. afterwards. What was okay. your second question? Second question is, does it count as stealing if you just go to their dumpster area after they close and set all the donuts outside? Oh, the day Because olds? I may have seen that happen before. Um, hmm. Wow. In, I'm Here? Not, Are you admitting to something? Like, no, or before oh. you came never, to work oh. or something? Never. Oh, wow. No, but it's a thing that college students without a lot of money have done in the past. Not wow. saying I know any or and you are, are one. a college student without a lot of money. But wow. it's possible to go to a donut factory after they close. Do you need to talk to somebody about this? Get the older donuts. They're still in the box. They're not really in the trash. Mm. I love how you said it's factory, not disgusting. too. Mm. Uh, I, no, just do what I do. And go after 7 o'clock and then you get half-price donuts. Did he just admit to something? Me? No. Oh. Oh. Uh, I was not very so many clear words. He has, he has to a lot not of de- admit that. He has a lot of detail about a very sort of borderline sort of situation. I'm just asking if that is stealing hmm. because he it said he stole donuts. I'm just so they leave the donuts at the dumpster. Is it stealing? They've left them. I don't know. It depends on what the law is. It's all for a good cause. Anyway, <laughs> donuts. Great you took cause. a nap break before. Now take a donut break. Good morning, everyone. Up and Adam. Time to head out the door and drag yourself to work. Hey, and don't forget to bundle up because it's cold outside. Almost as cold as my house. <laughs> but, uh, you know, here's some news that while it won't warm me up, it'll certainly cheer me up. It's Groundhog Day. What do you think, Cole? Early spring or six more weeks of winter? Now, wait a second. Didn't we already go over this? I'm pretty sure there's going to be six more weeks of winter. I don't know what you mean by have we gone over this already. But Do you mean have we had this conversation before? It seems like it. It seems like I've done this. Maybe it's just the day or maybe you're Hmm. in a time loop of your own that none of us Hmm. are aware of. Interesting. Anyway, this is the Matt Townsend Show. I'm Jeff Simpson. I'm here with Cole Wissinger and Terry South. And uh, speaking of cold in my house, I have an update on that story. So after speaking with Terry yesterday and after my wife did some more thinking, I was prepared prepared to go home and tell her, let's make an appointment. Let's get a second opinion because I don't want to spend all this money on something that we don't need to spend all this money on. She had already made the appointment, so she was on the same wavelength. And it turns out we had a guy come over. Could do it for half the price. Wow. And he told us, uh, this other guy may have ruined your AC. Because apparently, (laughs) and again, I don't know if this guy was incompetent or if he was purposely sabotaging our system. Mm. But apparently, wires were disconnected and he went down and rearranged other wires, which this new uh, installer told us he would have had to go out of his way 
to connect those wires the way that they were connected. The, Other plugs were unplugged so that water yeah. was dripping down so that the condensation so it was it was overheating so I'm so wondering, it's all a big conspiracy against it, Jeff. It, no, it could be. I'm wondering if this guy purposely did some things so that we would have to rely on his service and the, that we would have to buy an AC. The way you were explaining things, it sounded like the price kept going up. Sure. The more someone looked into it. And he spent too much time di- hours. diagnosing the problem. When I've had people come in, within 30 minutes, they're like, yep, here's the problem. Yeah. What's this seems that's why I just was saying second opinion. Yeah. See if you can bring somebody else in, get a different idea in there, and well, here you go. So now we have to decide if we're going to ask for a refund from that first company. Wow. Because they didn't do anything. How big and, and they how, may have sabotaged our AC. How big's the company? Do you know? That's is it pretty just, big. Is it just one person? No, 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 no. One guy in a truck? No. Yeah. That'd be tough to negotiate that yeah. way. <laughs> Anyway, the good he news answers is the phone. I didn't do that. We have heat in our house again. Nice. And it is wonderful. And it, it, it didn't cost as much. It cost half the price. It was half the price at least, but this other guy, I know it was probably a third of the price. Your equipment wasn't necessarily in need of replacement. It was needing of right. slight repair but, and also fixing of what was done before. But come spring, we may need to replace our AC because right. the way my wife explained it to me was Uh-oh. Down I've heard in the words. furnace, he manually he he un, he went up to our thermostat, unplugged the AC wire, mm-hmm. and then went down and made it so that the AC would turn on any time that the heater would go on. Ah. so they were both working, and you're not supposed to turn on your AC in this cold weather. No, it taxes the system. Doing so that. this new guy that came over it's and fixed cold. everything. That's that's what I mean. Yeah, he he uh, forewarned us. He said. You may have some problems with your AC in yeah. the spring. Got to be careful. <sighs> mm. Anyway, back to back to this groundhog situation. Yes. Um, Is the, there an update? Did the, he change his mind? No. Was there it, a recount? It's still the same. Okay. Now the accuracy of said groundhog. Yes. What's Which his is name? Unfallible. Punxsutawney Phil. Punks, yeah. What do you mean unfallible? Infallible. Infallible. What do you not mean? Not fallible. You, you he's seem perfect. somehow he's per- no, he's not. That's the best part. He's not. So according to the Groundhogs Club, there's a club in this town. It's a club of old Do white dudes like with blazers? top hats. Yeah. Oh. Remember in the movie? Uh-huh. Like, that's, that's real. That's right. That's that a happened. club. So according to various incarnations of the Groundhog, since it's been doing this since 1885. Wow. So there's several fills. They have predicted 103 forecasts of more winter and 17 early springs. There are nine years without any records, and they're not sure why, but they're not going to focus on that and keep moving. So, yeah, conspiracy. There's nine years there. They don't know what happened. Wait a minute. So no records or it's a punch like, Tony Phil it's said it like, was too close to call? It's not like in sports where there's just some records that aren't incomplete because, you know, they broke for the war or something. Terry, you, you know? tried doing something for over 100 years and not take nine years you off. You have a book right there. <laughs> number down it's not that well, hard i Data, think it was established that there have been different fills throughout the years well, yeah but you yeah. can every every year you'll have some secretary go okay more winter or maybe no, it know, was nine come. straight just one bum fill for nine years didn't do his job and then they got a new you know, that happened i want to just own, had an employee problem right yeah. i want to own some real estate there just for that week of groundhog day because i've heard that they pull in a lot of money it's yeah. true. Anyway, so you were saying. Data from a, a company called Storm Facts. They have an almanac. Th- their data shows that Phil's six-week 
prognostications have been correct 39% of the time. Hmm. 39% accuracy. That's in awesome. baseball, not bad. Yeah, in baseball, that's those are great numbers. In weather forecasting, eh. But when he started, there was no computers. They were just looking at, like, you know, the clouds and where are the trees, and you make a guess that sure. way, right? 40% or, of the time getting a hit in baseball, those are great numbers. Phil does a shade poorer when you check his performance against actual weather outcomes. Since 1969, when the accuracy of weather records is less in question... Uh, a meteorologist from the Weather Underground, if you use that service, which I do. From 1969 on, Phil's overall accuracy record drops to a rate of 36%. Hmm. So, so he was doing better when his competition was doing worse. Right. He just couldn't step it up. I feel like we're we're bashing Phil here. And they say it's slightly better when he doesn't see his shadow. Okay. So when he doesn't see his shadow, that means it's six weeks less. Yeah. And so that's usually more accurate than when he sees his shadow. But there so he only, saw his shadow. There so there's only some been doubt. a few of those yeah, so predictions. It's all, it's all just weird. But yeah, so basically okay. um, it's a rodent and it doesn't matter. <laughs> it knows of, the future, no, Terry. Just It's a scared rodent because he doesn't even like poke his head out. They grab him out of the hole. He's terrified. There's 90 the people The hole is called top Gobbler's hats. Knob and it's an important cultural <laughs> statement every year. Poor. Do you... Poor rodent. Do you have the Pennsylvania polka on your iPad dun, dun, or iPod? Dun, 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 now, dun, 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 remember, the, the mayor of New York, <laughs> de Blasio, a few years ago, yes. was holding the groundhog that they have in New York, and he dropped it, and it died later on. Remember that story? Oh, my goodness. This is a horrible situation for these animals. Be careful. I think he was sending him a message. In Punxsutawney, <laughs> Phil... Is Phil is a hero. We got a mafia hit going down on. on I, I'm going to make one there. prediction that I'm fairly certain will come to pass. Uh, we will be watching the film Groundhog Day tonight, Why? or yeah, tonight. Really? Why not? Okay. By we, mm-hmm. he doesn't mean we, Terry. I was it's like, okay. oh, I'm not involved. Great, go ahead. It's Do whatever a you work want. Function. It's sanctioned, and we have to come back to work Oof. at 7 p.m. That's rough. I have things to do. Okay. All right. I'm not sure what they are. My wife hasn't told me yet, but we'll figure that out later. You're kind of acting like Phil Connors right now. Okay. Now give us a weather forecast. No, don't give us a weather forecast. Give us a forecast of what's going on around the rest of the country. Huh. <laughs> I'll do my How best. How do you like that for a segue? White House aides are worried the FBI Director Christopher Wray may quit over the release of the controversial GOP author memo, which the Bureau denounced, according to CNN. Uh, Ray's concerns over the memo released are being disregarded and cast as part of a purported partisan leadership of the FBI. The FBI mm. Agents Association publicly stood by Ray in a release statement saying they appreciate him standing shoulder to shoulder with them. So it's like the collective them and then one guy. Okay. And they're all shoulder to shoulder. Sure. Okay. I got Cause it. Because it would be like shoulder and then like a million other shoulders, right? There's all these FBI agents. It's yes. not accurate to the numbers, what I'm trying to point out. Too many out. shoulders. The, uh, so they said the American public continues to be well served by the FBI. President Trump is expected to approve the release of the memo possibly today. Wait, I thought he Doesn't wasn't matter. going to. No, no, no. He wants it out there. Okay. All right. Get it out there. Now, House Speaker Paul Ryan said Thursday the release of the memo does not impugn Mueller, the Mueller investigation or the Deputy Attorney General during the press conference at a GOP congressional retreat in West Virginia. It's a very nice retreat they're at, by the way, mm. if you want to look that up. He claimed that the uh, work at the House Intelligence Committee in writing and releasing the memo is conducting legitimate oversight over a very unique law, the FISA courts, where they go to get these uh, wiretaps dealing with intelligence 
leaks with other governments and stuff. Yeah. He added that the memo is not just an indictment of our justice system, of the FBI, or the Department of Justice. These comments come as Congress is expected to release the controversial memo Friday. President Trump reportedly backing its release as a way to discredit the Russia investigation. If I was in the government and uh, I didn't check my email that day, I would be dreading the supervisor coming by and saying, did you get the memo? So... Paul Ryan says that this... Cole appreciated that reference. This is not a... The memo does not impugn Mueller investigation or the deputy attorney general. Okay. The president is quoted as saying this is a way to discredit the Russian investigation. Hmm. Just wanted to wrap that up there. Okay. It's kind of confusing when everyone needs to get on the same page here. They're all at the same place. They're all in West Virginia. They need to have a meeting, get their talking points, and then put it out together so that everyone says that it's not about what it's actually about. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and uh, get you another copy of that memo. Get that memo. <laughs> um, CIA Director Mike Pompeo said Thursday that officials from the agency met recently with Russian intelligence agents as part of, the, of an effort to keep Americans safe, responding to Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer's inu- uh, insinuations that the meetings were improper. Hmm. What does he mean by that? Well, you have members of Trump's cabinet, the director mm-hmm. of the CIA, mm-hmm. intelligence, those sorts of people, meeting with Russian spies. Huh. So okay. The, he kind of went, hmm, that's interesting. I wonder if they talked about sanctions at all. Interesting. Pompeo said they did not talk about sanctions. But it's interesting. While Russia remains an adversary, we would put American lives at greater risk if we ignored opportunities to work with the Russian services in the fight against terrorism, Pompeo wrote to Schumer. He's saying it's a coordinated effort so that we have some idea, they have some idea, and we can you know avoid each other if at all possible, and also be on the same... Um, level when we're discussing things. So if something odd is to happen, we have some open channels of communication instead of, you know, shooting bullets. Well, just ask Russia, because in in order to stay safe, we're targeting Russians, right? Yes. Well, that's what Russia <laughs> thinks. So, and, and that's part of it is let's explain what we're trying to do. Sure. Maybe they get a different context, that kind of thing. Right. Well, what's interesting, Pompeo met with the head of Russian's Foreign Intelligence Service, the SVR, mm-hmm. the head of the FSB, which is the main successor to the Soviet Security Era Service, KGB, which most people have yes. heard of, and the head of Russia's military intelligence, the GRU. Those are their three the biggest group. their three biggest intelligence groups, the heads of those each of those groups were here to meet with the CIA director. Aha. Uh-huh. And probably the director of a national intelligence at the same time. And so people were like, hmm, that's interesting. And he's saying, I'm just trying to keep the communications open. I go there to meet with them. They come here to meet with us. It's all hmm. it's all a thing. And then someone's like, ooh, spies, and toss it out there. <laughs> um, yesterday, uh, three of the biggest tech companies reported record quarterly financial results. They extended their dominance over the swaths of the global economy. That's all according to the Wall Street Journal. Apple's revenue rose 13% to $88.29 billion, fueled by its move to increase smartphone prices. I share this because, I mean, at some point everyone's involved because you're, oh, yeah. you're paying money, you know somebody. Yep. Tons of money going on here. The company, whose profits topped $20 billion for the first time, is also increasingly benefiting from its service businesses, including the App Store and music and payment services, all that kind of stuff. Google parent company is Alphabet. They recorded its 32nd consecutive quarter of revenue growth of 20% or more. That's crazy. So much money there. Continuing a dominant run that has handled more than 90% of internet searches and owns the world's most influential video sites. So 90% of the internet and YouTube, right? Everyone uses this service and this is what it's benefiting that company with. 
You, I, I, just, I can't believe, I can't wrap my head around those numbers. Twenty billion dollars in profit well, for Apple, right? For uh, eighty, no, eighty-eight point two nine billion in oh a quarter. Goodness. They have twenty. They, they've 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 topped twenty billion in profits for the first time, right? So they wow. they made eighty-eight twenty billion in profit. Just crazy. Uh, Amazon, long known for prioritizing growth over earnings. Right, so their earnings numbers will be lower, maybe disappointing, sure. but they're yeah. they're shoving the money back into the company so they can continue to grow. They delivered a profit exceeding a billion dollars for the first time as its revenue jumped thirty eight percent to sixty point five billion. Well, good for them, and yeah. they've got some Academy Awards too. So as it says, the tech giants expand their clout across a widening band of commerce. They have increasingly drawn scrutiny from lawmakers and consumers over a range of issues, from their dominance of certain markets to how they use their vast troves of consumer data. To the impact of their products have on society. Hmm. Wall Street Journal. Now, that's possibly why the new Amazon headquarters will end up in the Washington, D.C., Virginia area. They're of well, it's the, not coming of to the, Salt Lake? No. Of the 20, <laughs> which is a different story, of the 20 sites that are on their list, three of them are in the Virginia, D.C. kind of region. Yeah. And like the Jeff Bezos, who owns Amazon, mm-hmm. just built a brand new house in the D.C. area. So there's all these indicators that they're moving close to the seat of power because they want to have access because of, you know, possible regulation on their business because they're getting so big. I bet Jeff Bezos's new house is a very humble abode. Right. Full of all the Amazon uh, promoted products that they have. <laughs> like when you get on there and, oh, the Amazon select paper towels. And he has like a whole room of those. He's got all the buttons, the little quick buttons yep. that you can have. I've always kind of wanted. How do they? How do they handle people that have kids that accidentally press those? Well, the way it works is you push it once, uh-huh. and I believe it doesn't allow for another purchase until the for, the original purchase arrives. Okay. So that way, at least at that point, I mean, if you get your paper towels or whatever, then someone immediately punches the button. You get another one. You know, another one's on its way, but your kid can't walk up there and just jam that button like crazy. And then you may want to think about putting it out of reach of a child who doesn't understand what it is and what they're doing. Ooh, button. That looks fun. Yeah. Maybe put it adult height on the wall. You know what, though? I wouldn't trust a lot of adults to not press buttons either. Right. I enjoy a good button. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> it clicks. I can enjoy that. What are you going to do? Anyway, anything else we should be paying attention to? This story was interesting. Um, jurors got a taste of some hot courtroom beef last week in Pennsylvania as a lawyer for a mayor charged with bribery, fraud, and conspiracy argued over the definition of the word meatballs with a former finance director. Interesting. This is out of the New York Times. Like the definition of meatballs. Yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, and it has to do hmm. with... Uh, Didn't know that was up for debate. It's a bribery, fraud, and conspiracy charge, and they're arguing over meatballs. Ah. So Allentown, Pennsylvania, Mayor Ed uh, Palowski yeah, is on trial for allegedly accepting over 150000 in camp- campaign donations in exchange for city contracts. His lawyer, Jack McMahon, is trying to show that the scheme was actually carried out by underlings like former Allentown finance director... Garrett Strathern and political consultant Mike Fleck. And that's where the meatballs come in. In wiretap recordings made of the phone calls between Fleck and Strathern, phrases like, how I want my meatballs cooked and needs to go make some meatballs are heard frequently. Really? So they're using the phrase of cooking meatballs and making meatballs. And they're like, does this mean something else? So it says Mm. McMahon said it's clear meatballs refers to bribes. 
But Strather and, and federal prosecutor uh, Michelle Morgan said that's not the case. Under questioning <laughs> from Morgan, Strather said he was single at the time and carried Tupperware in his car to take home hot meals from friends. Um, he said he had some of Flex meatballs at a Christmas party, and Flex's wife offered to make more of them. In fact, Strather said he was disappointed that he only got four meatballs from Flex's wife when he went to pick them up. Things got testy when McMahon said, everyone knows it's a payoff. The meatballs were the meatballs were the meatballs. I'm sorry, even the most avid meatball fans don't talk about meatballs this much. Right. And they go, and don't laugh because that tells me that you don't believe me. The judge instructed jurors <laughs> to ignore the meatball argument. Don't laugh because it hurts my feelings. So the key phrase, of course, is the meatballs were the meatballs were the meatballs. That was all in one sentence. Yeah. Then you're not talking about meatballs, I don't the know. food. We'll have to see, but meatballs, hmm. it means bribery. Or does it? Not sure. I don't know. The judge says disregard meatballs is ridiculous. Maybe it's possible that he works for a meatball manufacturer and there was some sort of a payoff, but it was to get everybody hooked on meatballs. Because now I can't stop thinking about meatballs. I want to go to the store and buy some meatballs and then eat said meatballs. This just seems to have turned into Bash Pennsylvania Day. Really? Are you only only in Pennsylvania to, was was there a court? Have we been too mean to, to Phil and Meatball Boy? You have. It's my homeland. I blame Terry. Anyway, now I can't stop thinking about meatballs and donuts and how I hope to eat those. A lot of people will probably be eating those over the weekend as they celebrate the Super Bowl, which is interesting because our next guest, Karen Mangum, is going to be talking to us about Super Bowl foods, Super Bowl spreads, and giving us some tips on how we can make it a successful Super Bowl event. When we return, this is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who's away sick. Maybe he ate something that he shouldn't have, and it's not sitting well. And that may be the case this weekend as people celebrate the Super Bowl. There are plenty of options out there for things to eat. And today we are so blessed to have back on the program Karen Mangum, who is a licensed registered dietitian. She's also the author and producer of Inside Karen's Kitchen. And Karen, I'm so excited to have you here today um, because we're going to be talking about the aspect of the Super Bowl that is the most important aspect to me, and that's the food. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, Jeff. You mean it has nothing to do with the score? You know, I, I I could probably tell you one of the teams, the Philadelphia Eagles, that's in the Super Bowl. I don't know if I know the other. The other, I don't follow football, but oh, I follow. Jeff, be careful I because the food. you know what? The other team happens to be my favorite team. That was going to be my first question. Which team are you rooting for? Well, I'm rooting for the Patriots. The, I knew it was the Patriots. Yeah, yes, it was on the tip go. of my tongue. Oh, brother! So I want to I want to paint a little picture here for you. I'm with my family yesterday, and we're entering a suit, a certain big box store. We'll call it uh, Costco. And we're entering Costco, and we're very aware of the fact that we're going into Costco on Super Bowl weekend, remembering our experience from last year going on Super Bowl weekend when you see a plethora of demo people with their taquitos, with their chips and dips, with their donuts, with their array of cheeses. 
And it was heaven. It was heaven on earth. <laughs> yeah, you didn't really have to have a spread of your own. You just go to Costco right. and eat up. Yeah. Exactly. And I was just getting so hungry thinking, gosh, I wish I watched the Super Bowl so that I could partake in all these goodies. <laughs> so my next You know what? You don't have to watch the Super Bowl to enjoy all that That's stuff. That's true. It's there. That's if true. If you want it any time of the year. It's just that the any you know, a good marketer is going to set up an event. Or or a day of the year oh, sure. to to get people to eat more. Oh yeah, and as we walked into the store, everything <clears throat> was very strategically placed. Mm-hmm. The huge three pound bags of tortilla chips were right at the front of the store. Oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah. It appeals, and they know it. Yeah. So it happens to be the second largest food consumption day of the year, next to Thanksgiving. That is, is insane. That, isn't it crazy? That I is know. crazy. And it's not necessarily the healthy kind, healthiest kind of food. At least sure. at Thanksgiving, you. You know, you've got your turkey and excellent vegetables. and I mean, you eat a lot of food, but it's, yeah. a, you know, generally a nice, well-balanced meal. But, yeah. you know, Super Bowl <laughs> food is not necessarily well-balanced. We're yeah. talking pizza and mm. and guacamole and chicken wings and lots of beer. So yeah. people... Nobody's salivating over rice cakes and carrot sticks. <laughs> and I am not suggesting that either. <laughs> you know, the whole idea of, yeah, let's have a healthy Super Bowl. I think we got to just balance. It. It's all it's all a balancing act anyway. Sure. So now how do we do that? I mean, we, we're going into this not naive. We're going into this aware of the fact that we're going to be sitting down for three, four, maybe five hours. We're going to be eating plenty of food. Right. So how do we balance that when we're, we're really not going to indulge in things that are, let's say, healthy? Well, it's a way to balance it, though. I'll just say that again, because you can always have, you know, you can always have your pizza or, you know, your hot pastrami sandwiches or whatever. Yeah. But you then can also balance that with, you know, big trays of fruits and vegetables, because this is finger food heaven. The whole oh, yeah. game is finger food heaven. Yeah. So if you can have at least plates of, you know, um, carrot sticks and sugar snap peas and raspberries and blueberries and little baby oranges. They have those cute little baby apples out right now that are so great. So anything that's real finger food, and you put that in front of people, people are just going to be grabbing almost mindlessly. So if that's what you can have in front of you, along with the popcorn and the pretzels and, you know, some of the other stuff that you want to have out there... You might end up with a little more balance than you think, and you will end the Super Bowl perhaps feeling a little bit better about yourself oh, yeah. than you did. <laughs> Maybe if the score doesn't go your way, at least the food is a winner. Yeah, and I think we all do that. We're guilty of that at times when I think one of the biggest culprits is the giant tub of licorice. Oh, boy. You know, you're, you're oh, eating boy. it and you're you're thinking – I'm not saying this is the best thing in the world, but it's here. It's here. It's in front of me. Well, think about yourself at a movie. You know, you picture yourself Mm -hmm. with that bag of popcorn, and it is just one handful, not even just one kernel. I mean, some people are very disciplined like that, but not me. It's handfuls. Did you see me at the Cinemark last (laughs) night? I saw you. See, there I know. (laughs) Especially those lounge chairs they've got now. Man, you're just so relaxed and taking mouthfuls of food, and you're not even aware because your your sensory perceptions are more focused um, visually, Mm -hmm. but you then couple that with, you know, the the taste, the flavor sensations, and all of a sudden you have this multi-sensory experience. Yeah. And so, I mean, again, theaters are very smart. 
Mm-hmm. And, and just like you walking into Costco, you know, it's the visual, it's the smells, it's the sounds. And, and you couple, you, know, you associate now um, going to the movie with eating popcorn. Oh, yeah. Maybe it's the yep. Super Bowl. You got to have certain things in front of you. Yeah. And you bring up another good point because, first of all, you have the obstacle of it's all in front of me. So I have to fight temptation this whole game, you know. But there's also the social aspect. Right. A lot of people are social drinkers just the same way a lot of people are social eaters. Mm-hmm. I'm with this group of friends. Mm-hmm. I, In order to show them that I'm having a good time, I need to partake of all these goodies. Right. So, a, you know, a good strategy if you're really working on, you know, keeping your healthy goals. Because remember, we all started with healthy goals January 1st. Mm-hmm. But here we are, February 2nd. The gyms are loving it. They yeah. are. <laughs> at least the month of January. But yeah. we start waning. And people, I think the Super Bowl really trips people up. Oh, yeah. I really do think so. Because they perhaps give themselves permission to say, okay, forget it for this one day. But sometimes that one day can just like blow it. And you, and you don't feel, um, you, you feel discouraged. So come Monday, you know, if you can, you get back onto the patterns. But can you? Some people can't, like totally Mm. derails them on a day like Sunday. So so one strategy you can use is to place the food table away from the television. So everybody has to grab their food on plates and bring it over to the television. So, you know, the food isn't just placed right in front of you. Sure. Um, So that's one strategy if you want to set it up like that. Or you just make sure that in front of you are some of those healthier things that you can choose from because yeah the game is long so another good thing to remember is protein Mm -hmm. protein actually has staying power so if you can serve something or eat something that has a fair amount of protein like your cheese boards like you know like lunch meats or maybe um at my house we do like a big bowl of something like a chicken corn chowder or Mm -hmm. or a beef chili or you know something that is um hearty. It's got the vegetables, um, but also tastes really great. And it will stay with you longer throughout that game because the licorice won't. I'll tell you that much. You need a bite of licorice and that blood sugar jumps and then it dives and then you take another one and it jumps and it dives. So you're just constantly wanting to go back to the trough all the time. I guarantee somebody's out there thinking, that corn chowder sounds good. I wonder (gasps) if I can put that in a giant bread bowl. Ooh. Yeah, which okay. seems well, counterproductive. <laughs> well, that's okay, too. I was going to say, where is that recipe? Well, it yeah. happens to be at InsideKaren'sKitchen.com. Yes. That's my website. That's a nice plug. Um, yeah, so you can put the fruits and vegetables, all the good, healthier stuff I would say put it on the the coffee table, maybe even go a step further and put all the other bad stuff like outside in the freezing cold. (laughs) If you want the licorice, if you want the nachos, you've got to weather the, you've got to brave the cold out there. That is one strategy. (laughs) You know, go burn a few calories by getting, you know, grabbing your goodies out there. Yeah. No, it's not to say you can't have the goodies. I'm not ever saying that because I think it's important that you balance it. So on my website, actually, speaking of that, I do have a whole Super Bowl round. Up that you can look at appetizers, yeah. soups and stews. I've got finger foods, things like the street pork tacos. Oh. Um, I did yesterday, um, excuse me, today is going to air on uh, Studio 5. I did a great 
skillet meatloaf sliders. Oh, wow. Just, you know, cute little yeah. beefy patties that you slip in these cute little buns. And um, and there's a great recipe for that. And then also some yummy finger desserts, a uh, little cookie. And portion control. That's mm-hmm. kind of a big thing with um, – and that's the whole thing about street tacos or sliders or little cookies. You, they come in like portion sizes. So yeah. Rather than monster big size cookies, you just make smaller ones so that maybe you can limit your Yourself, yeah. If, if you can, if you have any kind of self control, is it appropriate or is it is it healthy for us to to think of events like the Super Bowl as an instance when it's okay for me to indulge and maybe that day I'm gonna work out really hard so that I can enjoy myself a little more and then the Super Bowl's over, I get right back to work uh, eating healthy and exercising. You know, every day, Jeff, is an opportunity to really enjoy your food. Mm -hmm. And I like to say every day can be, you know, a super day. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) (laughs) You know, just because, you know, it's not just all or nothing. Uh, Some people have a lot of that mentality. So I like to think of, I mean, the Super Bowl, yes, you're going to be enjoying foods that maybe you don't get. Uh, many other times of the year. Mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely just fine and you enjoy them. Perhaps you can, you know, um, be moderate if you, if, if possible. A lot of people can't do that, but, um, or, or not. But then don't feel bad about it. Honestly, don't feel bad about it. It yeah. was a day. It was a day. It was a game. And uh, next year it comes around again. The problem is, is that a lot of these days come up throughout the year. So we've got Valentine's coming up in a couple of weeks, and then we've got Easter, and then I mean it was just then there's goes some on. work party exactly. where it's somebody's birthday, somebody's birthday, yeah. you know. So events are happening all the time, right? So how do we deal with those in our daily life? And it really does come down to you know um, establishing your goals, your priorities, and is working your environment like we just talked about, moving the food away a little bit, making sure that there's lots of hydration near you so that you can fill up on fluids that actually will help you eat less yeah if you drink a lot of your waters and non-caloric beverages during the game or you know during the event every commercial is in fact the commercials are the best right i mean those are some (laughs) of the fun parts of the super bowl Um, normally we're we're speeding through commercials but not during the super bowl they're just so hilarious they're so creative so that's fun time maybe that's time you hydrate make sure you get all your fluid in um and and those kind of techniques will help you control a little bit better during during the Super Bowl. But then, you know what? Don't feel bad about it. Don't, yeah. don't feel bad. Because the next day you do, you get up, you get back on your pattern again, and and we start all over again every day. Does it help to have some sort of a game plan going to a Super Bowl party where in your mind you're thinking, you know what? If there's this type of food, I'm just making a decision ahead of time. I'm not going to eat it. Or when I reach this level, I'm going to stop. It Does it help to make that decision in our minds beforehand? I think mentally every day we can do that too. Yeah. Not just at a Super Bowl party, but sometimes at parties you can, you know, we talked about uh, this a little bit with holiday parties a, a while back. And, and that is you go in with a little mindset of um, I'm going, what am I going to um, enjoy at this party? Why am I going to this party in the first place? Is it just for the food? No. Sometimes. Maybe. Okay. <laughs> if you're Jeff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I think a lot of times you realize it's people. 
Mm-hmm. I'm going to go see people. This is a social event, and I really want to enjoy myself. And so part of that will be, okay, I'm here to enjoy these these folks, um, the whole environment, the experience. And part of that is the food, obviously. So you allow yourself permission to enjoy some of the, the cool things that maybe you don't get to eat any other time of the year. Yeah. Um, but it's not the main point. And that's something you have to just develop over time and realize, um, you know, what's the goal? So sometimes Super Bowl parties, you know, they can be definitely about the food. Somebody's taken a lot of time probably to put some things together. And so you want to appreciate it. So mm-hmm. look at it. So visually, and a lot of people take a lot of time visually. I don't know if you've seen any of the Super Bowl spreads out on, um, I, I can't believe the intricacy. Some people are recreating football fields <laughs> with food. They're recreating football fields with wow. food. You know, it's amazing some of the things that you'll see out there. So people are taking ton of time, so appreciate the visual, you know, maybe the smells, um, the sounds, and, and then, of course, the taste is just one part of the whole event. So, yeah, kind of prepare ahead, knowing some strategies that I'm going to enjoy, and I'm going to listen. I'm trying, going to try to listen when I'm full. I got to back off. Yeah. got to back off. And it seems like nowadays you're not hearing so much of dieting and abstaining from certain foods and the conversation is going more toward no you can keep eating the foods that you want you just need to change your mindset change your habits a little bit just mm-hmm. make some little modifications and then you're not depriving yourself to the point where when you cheat you go way overboard and then you it's kind of like a remission you know unfortunately that is the american way yeah we're we're just yeah. sort of an all or none kind of attitude and so the whole idea of okay let's let's enjoy ourselves on a day like a super bowl but you know there are patterns that we can establish and you get back we get right back onto it so um yeah i think you're right it's it's um Realizing that all foods can fit into a healthy into a healthy meal plan, and and I know that you've been working on that, you know, right? Yeah. How, how did you know? Well, I've heard you. Oh, okay. Yeah. I've heard you say it, you know, many times. I listen. I listen to BYU yeah. radio, and I've heard you say that you've been really making an effort to, you know, cut back on your portions. Mm-hmm. You're increasing your exercise. So what are some of the other things you're doing? So one thing that we've started doing, and I've actually really enjoyed it, um, we've focused on um, pre-portioning our vegetables, first of all. So basically, once a week, we just take a bunch of Tupperware, and one time we're preparing all of our vegetables ahead of time so that when it's time to eat, we just grab it from the fridge and the first thing we do is we eat those vegetables. So the right. first thing we're doing is Great. eating the good stuff. Oh, and fantastic. we're getting fuller yes. faster. Yes. And, and uh, they're water-rich foods. Yeah. So that has something yeah. to do with the volume that, are, that we can hold. So yeah. that volume is filled up with water-rich foods, which are generally very, very healthy vegetables. Yeah. And some fruits, but mostly vegetables. And I've been surprised at how much I've looked forward to eating those vegetables each and every day. Wow. So, yeah. So, like carrots, sugar snap peas, we've what got else? Carrot, those are two of them. Uh, we've also I, – I've been really enjoying raw broccoli. Yeah. Just dipped in a little bit of ranch. Yeah, just a little taste. And then also cherry or grape tomatoes. Excellent. 
Yeah, because mm. they see how handy they're and their finger food. You yeah. don't have to. You don't even have to lift a knife. Right. Things are already cut up. I mean, and you've done it ahead of time. So mm-hmm. you don't have to do any work. You just open the container or take it with you. Yeah. And I will admit, uh, for instance, last night I knew I was going to go to the movies. I knew I was going to get some popcorn. Okay. And I didn't go overboard when I ate it. But uh, one thing I did was I know I'm going, so I'm going to work out tonight. I'm going to make sure that it happens tonight and that I work out maybe a little extra so that I can yeah. enjoy it. I mean, that's a possibility too. I don't. I don't always like to see exercise being used as a like a punishment, <laughs> you know, for or or a give and take. I mean, yeah. it, it, it should just always be a part of what we're doing. But um, but I do like the portionality. I think that yeah. is a fabulous technique and bringing things home and being prepared ahead mm-hmm. of time. So you know what? Same with Super Bowl. Uh, make sure those things are available because we want color every time you eat. Every time I, I this is a rule at my house. If we're going to have pizza, you also have to have, to have some kind of fruit or vegetable, even if yeah. it's just baby carrots or a sliced apple. That's got to go on the plate along with the pizza. I know my kids. We would serve pizza at even birthday parties. I was I was bringing out the carrot sticks and and the applesauce or whatever you know for the kids. They loved it. It was okay. It was great. The kids got a little extra. Along with the pizza. I'm peeking over your shoulder because it looks like Terry is itching to ask a question. What if it's on the <laughs> oh, pizza? Oh, good question, Terry. <laughs> so that accounts too. I mean, we've got um, – I always like to choose healthy vegetarian or mm-hmm. veggie pizzas. Um, yeah, that way you can really load up on mushrooms and green peppers and tomatoes. And yes, that counts for sure. You've got to count that. But, you know, I and more is better. Yeah. More vegetables is better. Well, Karen, once again, you've done it. We we always appreciate you here on the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you. You, for... you didn't disappoint. You've encouraged me. You've let me know that it's okay to continue enjoying the foods that I like. But uh, you've given us some good pointers, too, on, on how we can enjoy the Super Bowl weekend and our eating experiences beyond Super Bowl weekend. Beyond. Awesome. Well, uh, go uh, Chicago Bears. No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm giving you a hard time. I hope your Patriots win and that you have a wonderful Super Bowl. Thank you, Jeff. All right. Her name is Karen Mangum. you got to look her up on Inside Karen's Kitchen. It's a healthy food blog. She's also a licensed registered dietitian. Enjoy Super Bowl weekend and also enjoy Groundhog Day as we continue to celebrate it here on The Matt Townsend Show. So, Cole, you can probably guess what we're going to be talking about with that song introducing this segment. Skipping School. Skipping School? It's a good guess. Um, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, the movie. It's a reference to the movie. Correct. But uh, maybe paying attention to what? Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop around once in a while, if you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. I have that quote up on my wall in my movie room basement. Anyway, we're going to be talking about Ferraris. Oh, that too. And, uh, you know, a Ferrari was featured in the film Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And uh, this is kind of sad 
the owner of a 300,000 I maybe I don't need to feel sorry <laughs> for this guy but the owner of a $300,000 Ferrari is suing Marriott International saying a hotel valet gave his keys to a young man who is trying to impress a woman he just met. Mm. The Tampa Bay Times reports that 73-year-old attorney James Skip Fowler parked his yellow Ferrari because he's skipping class like Ferris Bueller. That's why he has the Ferrari. Parked his yellow Ferrari outside the hotel last July 27th while attending a lawyer's convention in St. Petersburg. That sounds riveting. (laughs) There, the 2014 Ferrari remained for more than 12 hours until Levi Mills, then 28, showed up. Miles said he told the woman it was his and demanded the keys, telling the valet that the ticket was in the car and he'd bring it back. And he never did. Oh, so it wasn't – see, when you first read it, I thought it was the valet going on a joyride, in which case – Which also happens in the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off. That's a great scene. So uh, he never did bring that ticket back. The two sat in the car for quite a while, according to a St. Petersburg police report. Eventually, the valet said he stopped paying attention after he figured he wasn't getting a tip. Miles drove off with a woman in the passenger seat until an officer stopped him for driving without taillights. And uh, then he said he had just met the woman and she asked if the Ferrari was his. Yeah, yeah, that's my car. In fact, I think he said, oh, yeah. Um, But Miles says he's innocent of grand theft because the valet gave him the keys. Oh, that's how theft works. Yes, yes. I I, I lied to get something that wasn't mine, but that's not stealing Mm -hmm. because the other person, they should have known better. They should have asked me for identification or they should have gotten that ticket first. Fowler, meanwhile, this is the lawyer, is accusing the hotel and valet of negligence. He might have a case there. In the story, it might have said that the valet stopped paying attention when he realized he wasn't getting a tip. I think stopped paying attention and negligence are in at least the same ballpark. Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah. I'm not a lawyer. With a $300,000 Ferrari that goes to lawyer conferences, but I think I can make that connection. Maybe he let it slide because this young gentleman said, come on, I know you took it on a joyride too. And then the valet said, touche. This is all, that part of it is maybe fake news, but maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe there's something else going on there. Anyway, when we return, we have another driving uh, MT News Story, and uh, we'll get to that when we return. This is the Matt Townsend Show. So we teased another driving empty news story. Uh, this one involves a Maserati and a postal worker. A postal worker is the postal worker driving the Maserati. Well, are they on, upgrading I'll, their cars? I'll, I'll get to that. I, I doubt that the U.S. government is uh, spending extra money on Maseratis. You never know. I'm just say there was a new budget that passed. We don't know everything that's in it. Touche. A postal worker allegedly stole dozens of credit cards from his Long Island post office using the tens of thousands of dollars he gained to purchase luxury items, including designer clothes and a Maserati, prosecutor said. 
Mm-hmm. Naquan Wilson, a twenty-eight, another twenty-eight-year-old. What is it about twenty-eight-year-old and and stealing and cars? Fast cars? I don't yeah. know. Twenty-eight-year-old <laughs> from Perth, Amboy, New Jersey, was arrested after his shift Tuesday night. He had stolen six credit cards on him at the time. Uh, at the time he was cuffed, according to prosecutors. But that was just the tip of the iceberg. Prosecutors said Wilson was stealing credit cards from the mail of Garden City residents for at least eight months. Wow. An effort that netted him at least 30 credit cards, which he used to make the pricey purchases. Wilson worked at the post post office since 2014 and would scope out the mail looking for packages containing the credit cards. With the cards in hand... Wilson would go on the dark web and use the cryptocurrency Bitcoin to pay for information about the people whose cards he'd stolen. Complaints from credit card holders prompted the investigation that led to Wilson's arrest. Now, I'm confused because don't you – when you get the credit cards, you, I know you have to activate the card. So you have to plug in the 16 digits on the card. I can't remember though. Do you have to give any other information to those automated uh, – Voice messages. I have one credit card, not six stolen ones, so I really don't remember what the process was. You know, I don't think you do. I really don't. I, I don't think know. Bitcoin was an important part in this because you can just like do dark web things that I don't know sure. how to do either and make it happen. Yeah. So we're we're not advocating stealing credit cards on the Matt Townsend show, right? Right, Jeff? Right. Okay, good. Okay. So we want to really quickly give you a preview of what's coming up on the next hour of the Matt Townsend Show, yeah. which is screen, screen cleaning. cleaning. This is normally the segment where Matt's like, hey, Jeff, what's on your show? But I felt like it would be a little self-serving if I was like, hey, Jeff, what's going to be on the show that we will both be on right. in a couple minutes? It's also the, the part of the program where Matt stumbles over the name of screen cleaning and can't ever remember what it is. But we don't want to – man, I feel like we've beat up Punxsutawney Phil. We've beat up other Philadelphia things. We've beat up Matt the Townsend. Eagles took a hit today as yeah. well, bringing on a Patriots fan. Wow. So anyway, on the program, on screen cleaning here in just a few minutes, we are going to be talking about Disney princesses, superheroes, and how they're affecting our children. Interesting topic. We're also going to be giving you a an interesting list celebrating uh, – well, the word best is used in the category, celebrating movies that probably aren't going to be appearing on the best of lists of any movie critic at all. And uh, we're also going to continue our Groundhog Day celebration. That's coming up next. When we return, we'll get to screen cleaning on The Matt Townsend Show. Good morning, everyone. Up and at them. Time to head out the door and drag yourself to work. Hey, and don't forget to bundle up because it's cold outside. Almost as cold as my house. (laughs) But, uh, you know, here's some news that while it won't warm me up, it'll certainly cheer me up. It's Groundhog Day. What do you think, Cole? Early spring or six more weeks of winter? Okay, I swear we have done this before, Jeffrey. Tell me I'm not crazy. What are you talking about? I have been here. It's seven o'clock. Two hours now. It's seven o'clock on Groundhog Day. No. Wait, what time is it? 
<gasps> it is nine o'clock. What have we been doing for these first two hours? The Matt Townsend Show. That's right. And uh, welcome, because this is Screen Cleaning on the Matt Townsend Show. We're enjoying Groundhog Day all day today. And, and all day tomorrow, and all day the next day, and all day the next day, and all day the next day. For fifty to 10,000 years, depending on your theory. Anyway, uh, we've got a little bit of news to talk about. We weren't able to talk about this last week because we were doing our Steven Spielberg show, our special 30th show. Which I had fun with. Yes, absolutely. And uh, we, we, it wasn't uh, – the fights weren't that extreme. Our disagreements were civil. And, uh, you know, speaking of civility and disagreements in Hollywood – We've got the Academy Awards coming up. We have all these Oscar nominations. And uh, you got to love this rule of there can be anywhere from five to ten Best Picture nominees. Ever since they established that rule, it's pretty much just nine. Nine Best And the reason they did that is to give other more popular films like Wonder Woman, let's just say, a chance to be included in that category of Best Pictures. And uh, it hasn't really worked out that way. Instead, they've just chosen nine films that, for the most part, really nobody has seen or Oscar-y heard of. They're still kind of movies. Yeah. Right. I've seen a few of them. Um, but, yeah, that hasn't really panned out the way that they were probably hoping. And I know a lot of people are upset that Wonder Woman wasn't nominated for anything, but Boss Baby was nominated <laughs> for Best Animated Feature. It's a softer category. If they had a best superhero feature, then Wonder Woman would have gotten nominated. They don't. They have a best animated feature. Boss Baby gets nominated. That's really crumbles. With several Pixar films released every year, it should just be best animated Pixar film or best Pixar film, (laughs) which I'm fairly certain it's going to go to Coco. I don't know anything else that could beat it. Well, remember when we did our best of 2017 show and we'll do a different kind of best of today. But in our actual best of 2017, Rod Gustafson did mention Loving Vincent as being one of his favorite movies. And that's another animated. That's true. That's being nominated. But those films that uh, unless you're up for best picture and nobody's seen it, it's it's tough. It's tough to win that award. I'll be watching the awards show anyway. Oh, me too. I like it. It is going to be a crazy, crazy year. It's coming up in March. Jimmy Kimmel is the host once again. So he's going to have plenty of material. We won't get into that, but uh, it'll be entertaining nonetheless. Speaking of entertaining, the Ant-Man and the Wasp trailer just came out. Looks very entertaining, very clever, and uh, just as funny as the first one. That is one of the Ant Man. The first Ant Man film was one of my top five favorite Marvel movies. That's fair, and and I love the marketing for the Ant Man whole franchise because right along with the trailer, they also released a movie poster, yeah, which is entirely white, and it says really big at the bottom, Ant Man and the Wasp. And then in the middle of this entirely white field, you can just see two tiny little figures that are Ant-Man and the Wasp. It gets people to go up to the poster for sure. And then as far – speaking of trailers, and you mentioned Super Bowl and a lot of trailers coming out during the Super Bowl commercials. There will be a ton this year. Including – tell me if I'm wrong. Will there be a solo A Star Wars Story trailer during the Super Bowl? I'm not 100% sure that they've confirmed it, but Disney, the company, with, which includes Lucasfilms and which includes Marvel and which includes 
every movie that we'll ever see ever. Uh, they have bought a certain number of spots for trailers okay. in the Super Bowl. We all assume that Solo will be one of them. It comes out in like a couple months and there's been no push right. for it yet. And I did read. People are a little nervous. I did read online that it is going to come out sometime next week. So that seems like it'd be a prime time to do it. Literally prime time. Right. Anyway, when we return, we're going to be speaking with Rod Gustafson, and Rod Cole and I are going to be talking about a movie that is out today, as well as we're going to give you our least of the best of 2017. We're going to remain positive here on the Matt Townsend Show and on Screen Cleaning when we return. back to screen cleaning here on the Matt Townsend Show. It's our uh, pleasure to converse with our good friend Rod Gustafson of Parent Previews, who is here today to tell us a little bit about a new film called Winchester. Now, Rod, I want you to give us a quick synopsis of this film, and then I want us each to take about one minute to give our our take of, of how we enjoyed the film. Cole and I both saw the film last night as well. So uh, what can you tell us about the film Winchester? What is it about? Well, what the film Winchester is about is about this woman, Sarah Winchester, and she was the wife of William Winchester, the guy who started the huge gun company. Of course, everybody's heard of Winchester Rivals. And anyway, I, they had a little girl. The little girl passed away when she was very young. And then about a decade later, her husband died of tuberculosis. So she's convinced that the family is cursed. And it turns out, and this part is where the questionable part comes in, whether all of this is true or not. She talked to a medium in Boston. He told her that all the ghosts of all the people who had been shot by her husband's guns were out to get her. And so what she needed to do was move west to California. That part sounded good to me. And build a house for her and all the ghosts. And so to this day, and this part, now we're back into reality again. There is a mansion in San Jose. It wasn't San Jose when she moved there. But that she built this humongous rambling house. And she says in the movie, she is being directed by the ghosts as to each of these new rooms she should be adding onto the house. And so the place is just an absolute architectural nightmare (laughs) in more ways than one. So, Rod, I'm going to go ahead and give my quick take of this film really quick. And I'll I'll try to remain positive because in a minute here, we're going to do our – some people might say, oh, you're just doing your – Worst of 2017 list. No, no, no. We're doing our least of the best list of 2017. And I'm excited. I was excited when I saw this movie because it took the crown of the least of the best of 2018 for me. And uh, what I appreciated about this movie is that it made me want to go see the Winchester Mansion in San Jose, California. Uh, It also made me appreciate that there are still roles out there for women of Helen Mirren's age in Hollywood. And uh, it also made me – I also really appreciated the time that I had sitting in a recliner sipping on an Icy. Um, (laughs) And with that, I'm going to leave it at that and let Cole – quickly share with us how he felt about this movie. Because I actually enjoy horror movies. Okay, yeah, yeah, Is that why we're... Sure, yeah. 
because it was a perfectly serviceable horror movie. There were plenty of jump scares if you're into that, and it created a good atmosphere. The whole inspired by true events part of the house is awesome because I spent my youth watching the biography channel and the history channel and learning about all these haunted houses and alien things and everything else that they put on those channels. And the Winchester house was always featured in these kind of things. I remember Mm -hmm. the myth being that she made it all twisty and turny to confuse the ghosts, which isn't Ah. the take they took in in this movie, but that's what I remember learning about the house from my childhood. And to see the house represented on the big screen and having actual actors kind of weave their way through it and put a horror movie in this house that I've known about for 20 years was kind of a a fun nod back to something that I remember from my childhood. One more quick thing that I'll say. I was very tired when I went to this movie. It didn't start till about 10 o'clock. So I, I appreciated that I was able to give my mind a rest and I didn't have to think at all during the movie. So, Rod, I'm curious to know real quick what you thought of Winchester. Well, excuse me, I enjoyed it more than I thought I would. I actually, so, you know, I I respect getting an occasional horror movie where we don't have so much violence. Like, here's the parent previous perspective. There's really no sexual content in this movie. There are like two little minor um, profanities in it. And the violence isn't so over the top that, you know, you couldn't recommend this for teenagers. Which is awesome considering it's about guns, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, even though it is about guns, yeah, for sure. And I mean, there are some scenes towards the end where where there's a lot of shooting going on. Uh, But, you know, relative to a lot of other PG-13 movies, you could do a whole lot worse as far as objectionable content. And if you like made you jump scenes, this movie is full of them. So it's got lots of, you know, it's it's just like a it's like a good old fashioned scare fest. And I had to give it a little bit of credit for that. And it was really cool just looking at the recreation of the house in this movie. I think some of the movie was filmed in the house and the rest was done. I saw about four Australian production credits at the beginning of it. So I, I think the rest of it was shot on the stage in, in Aussie land way down south. Well, Rod, uh, I like I said, this is my new least of the best uh, on my list for 2018. And now we're each going to share three of our picks from our least of the best of 2017. And I'll go ahead and start. I almost didn't put this one on my list because it is R-rated, but I did see it on TV, so it was edited. And I should also mention that all three of these picks for me are sequels. So the uh, the absolute least of the best uh, for me in 2017 was a little film called Horrible Bosses 2. Now, this kind of picks up where the first film left off. You have these people that aren't trying to kill their boss and failing miserably, but they're trying to get revenge up on somebody that stole their idea and is profiting profiting by it. And, you know, it has the same—it's consistent. That's one thing I'll say about it. It's consistently rambling and, uh, again, another film where I don't have to think. I can just sit down and— and and watch it. I, I wouldn't use the word enjoy, but I can sit down and watch it. And that is Horrible Bosses 2, which stars um, Charlie Day and Jason Sudeikis and Jason Bateman of Arrested Development fame. So that is my least of the best of 2017. Going up a little higher on the list, so this film was even better than Horrible Bosses 2. And again, another sequel 
Despicable Me 3. What I really enjoyed about this film, this, of course, follows the adventures of Gru, who started out as a villain but is now kind of trying to be good in his own bad way. And he's working with his brother. So I like that this film incorporates Gru's family a little more. And it looked great. And I actually really enjoyed the character of Balthazar. Oh, I can't remember his last name. But I loved the whole 80s take that they gave with this film. And I enjoyed that I got to go see it with my young children. Um, You could do a lot worse than Despicable Me 3. But uh, my the, the last pick... On my list, and Rod and I and Cole, we had all coordinated ahead of time, and this is one that was on both my list and Rod's list. But I'll go ahead and mention it. It is Daddy's Home Two. Now, what I appreciate what what I appreciate about this film is that uh, it represented a fair amount of cash for the actors involved. It kind of did seem like a little bit of a cash grab to me. And I have to admit, it, it they produced a very entertaining, funny trailer. And uh, I what I appreciate was that I got to see all of that material in the first 15 minutes of the movie. And then everything after that was new, maybe less funny material that wasn't in the trailer. Um, the unfortunate thing for my wife was that she was out getting treats at the concession stand during those first 15 minutes, so she missed all the funny parts. But uh, this is, again, it follows the story of Will Ferrell and Mark Wahlberg, who are in this family together, kind of begrudgingly at times, and it's just the circumstance that they're in. And their fathers, their own fathers, are being invited over for Christmas. So you've got Mel Gibson, who's playing Mark Wahlberg's father, and John Lithgow, who's playing uh, Will Ferrell's character, and I or uh, Will Ferrell's father. And I really enjoyed their bits in the movie. So there you have it. Horrible Bosses 2, Despicable Me 3, and Daddy's Home 2. There, this must be saying something about sequels. What do you guys think? <laughs> well, yeah, it probably does because often sequels, you know, you go into it thinking – it, it, obviously, well, no, not always, it, it, but most of the time the first movie was good. So you always go in wanting the second movie to be good. And so I think that's how come then we wind up with these movies where we think, well, I really wanted to like that. And I think those are the types of ones we're talking about today. So you want to hear my trio? Absolutely. Okay. And by the way, I, I know that we talked about this originally, but I changed all my minds, <laughs> all my minds, all three of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so first one, this is, and again, a little bit of a parent preview slant on this. This one came out, I think it was about exactly a year ago, Monster Trucks. <laughs> Are you ready? Yes. I. This was a movie that was made for kids, and, you know, it's one of those January releases where I'm thinking, yeah, I know why this thing's coming out in January. But I must admit, it has a really warm, fuzzy heart to it. And parents, if you're looking for a PG movie that works well for eight-year-old boys, there are very few films that are just targeting that narrow little eight to ten-year-old range. And I really appreciated Monster Trucks. And what I, the other thing I appreciated about it is that it's just got a real good work together out attitude with this young this young boy and this young girl who want to try and figure out why there's a slimy dinosaur 
that his possessed a pickup truck. So yeah, it's a little <laughs> bit off the off the top. Um, and then the Great Wall, which um, it, this this proved to me that the United States and China can come together and make something <laughs> so ridiculous that uh, you just sit back and you go, really? Is that really a dinosaur monster thingy that's attacking the Great Wall? And this was the movie that was starring Matt Damon. Uh, it came out, I think, last February. I'm seeing a pattern. Most of these movies come out during that time of year where uh, I call it the studio dumping ground. But, you know, the Great Wall, I think there's potential in 20 years that this will have a cult following. And that wow. there will be people, yeah, it, I like it. I don't think it was supposed to be a comedy, but I was <laughs> laughing quite a bit in this one. And then another one, and it, now this one we weren't recommending because there's lots of reasons not to recommend it because of ethics and that type of thing. But Logan Lucky, uh, PG-13 movie that uh, covers this uh, this story. Um, it's basically, it's a hillbilly remake of, you know, the Ocean's 11, Ocean's 12, Ocean's 13 movies. And uh, again, this was another one of those films uh, is about lying and stealing and bomb making. Uh, but it really, for adults, mom and dad, if you're looking for uh, a little bit of a different fun rental, uh, this one's got some great potential. That's interesting because that was kind of high up on my list of, of films that were toward the best side of the equation of 2017. Okay. All right. We'll call it. <laughs> and again, again, sorry, this is the parent previews take because That's true. Yeah. obviously Logan Lucky is a well-made film, but there were just a lot of issues in it that you probably, you know, didn't want to promote to your kids. All right. Well, Cole, what's on your list of the least of the best? Monster Trucks was almost on my list but it got replaced at the very last minute so i will i guess reiterate the fact that that one is is a best on the least side but my my three movies that i've chosen here uh, i'll start off with a movie that i've complained about um up and down since it's come out and that is the mummy mummy successfully <laughs> uh ruined the universal dark universe for me and it was able to bring me back to a happier time and remind me to go watch the 1999 version of Brendan Fraser's The Mummy, which is a great action-adventure comedy with a mummy also involved. This one chose not to go the horror aspect. They chose to go the uh, fun adventure way, and it got Tom Cruise to run around a lot. See, this is great. <laughs> I'm glad that you were able to recognize that it brought you back to a happier time. Exactly. So it yeah. it did a yeah. It, That's it what was movies successful. are supposed to do. They remind me of a of a nice time of my childhood, <laughs> and uh, one that doesn't exactly take me back, uh, but it keeps me in the present. Was the Emoji Movie, which I guess sort of reminded me of Inside Out, which is a wonderful examination of inside the human brain. This was a wonderful examination of inside my smartphone that's in my pocket at all times and it gives personality to these seemingly personalityless uh, single aspect emojis that you have on your phone and it followed the same beats of of inside out as you look at puns within the world of your phone instead of the world of your head this is great because i know a lot of people out there have been wondering all this time what is my cell phone thinking 
Right. And if it has the voice of Patrick Stewart inside it as well, it's a wonderful thing. And then finally, I have to mention the movie that I got maybe the most enjoyment out of on this entire list. And that is Netflix's Bright, because I watched it for two minutes and then took an hour and 57 minute nap and then woke up for the credits. And it was one of the best things that happened to a movie for me in 2017. Wow, yeah. Any any movie that can move you to sleep is is a good thing in my mind. It's it's a unique emotion that a movie brings out. Absolutely. You know. Yeah, that that reminds me of when I was about I don't know, 20 years old, Chariots of Fire hit the theaters. And uh and I went with some friends and this was back in my, you know, all night partying days and whatnot and and I remember sitting in the theater sleep seat sleep <laughs> there I gave it away. And I said to my buddy beside me, I said, Man, these credits are going on forever. He says, You missed the entire movie. <laughs> <laughs> but that Vangelis soundtrack just put me out. Da, wow. da, 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 da. All right. Da. Cole and Rod, I think we have about a minute and a half for each of us, not each, but uh, total, to give an honorable mention. I will say uh, I crossed this off at the last minute, but this is a movie that is nominated for Best Animated Feature this year. So an honorable mention for me this year would be Ferdinand. Um, and I will say right off the bat that this film is much better than it had any right to be in the first place. Um, I It gave me an opportunity to exercise patience in... Each with each and every line that came out of uh, the goat's mouth, the goat was played by Kate McKinnon from Saturday Night Live. So any film that can get me to exercise patience, I, again, in my book, is a good thing. So Ferdinand would be my uh, honorable mention. Ferdinand's Oscar nomination got me to go back and read the book. So there a good go. thing did come of What's that. What's your honorable mm. mention, Cole? I'll, I'll, I'll use Monster Trucks then because it did almost make my list. It brought out the eight-year-old boy in me thinking how cool it would be if a slimy monster dinosaur thing was inside a cool truck and they went mudding <laughs> around. and It was certainly enjoyable. <laughs> and how about for you, Rod? What would your honorable mention be for the least of the best of 2017? Well, this might this kind of surprised me that it was kind of one I was considering. I was in some ways disappointed by the Lego Ninjago, Ninjago movie, but the more I've thought about it, the more I've liked it. So I think I think that one is going to have to be on my list. There were th- some things about it. It just fell so far short of some of the well, especially the first Lego movie for me. But uh, still, I, there were some things about it that I really, really did enjoy. And Lego Batman did come out in 2017. It's it was one of those January, February times as well. But yeah, that was even a really good entry into the Lego universe. I will say, yeah. even though I was kind of disappointed in Lego Batman, when I saw the other films that were nominated for Best Animated Feature this year, I thought, what about Lego Batman? What happened to Lego yeah. Batman? Yeah. yeah. But how did you guys feel about Lego Ninjago? Did either of you see it? That's the I, one that came out in September. It was it was uh, a couple of movies away from making this list. It almost made yeah. the list. And yeah. I didn't see yeah. it. Yeah. It's it's one that really makes you appreciate the Lego Batman movie, let's just say. <laughs> Any, yes. Anyway, Rod Gustafson from Parent Previews, we really appreciate you as always being on screen cleaning, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Great to be here. 
When we return, we are going to be speaking with Sarah Coyne, who's going to be talking to us about the effects of our children watching these films about princesses and superheroes. When we return, this is Screen Cleaning on The Matt Townsend Show. Today, we have a very special guest on Screen Cleaning who's going to talk to us about some findings that she has uh, discovered when studying the effects of children watching films about princesses and superheroes. Her name is Sarah Coyne, and she's an associate professor of human development in the School of Family Life here at Brigham Young University. Sarah, welcome to Screen Cleaning. Hey, thanks for having me. So I, this is so fascinating to me because I have two daughters, one who is about to turn six and one who is three, and they consume pretty much everything that's Disney. They watch all the Tinkerbell and princess shows on Netflix, and uh, they haven't really seen too many superhero movies, but they have seen the Lego Batman movie, which is kind of a superhero movie, I guess. So I, I'm interested to find out more about the study that you conducted and what it means for my daughters and, and for children everywhere. Yeah. So let me tell you how I got the idea for this study, because I, I think this is relevant. So um, I personally have four boys and one daughter, so kind of the opposite of you. But mm-hmm. when my daughter was three years old... I was at a gender development conference in California, and a woman by the name of Peggy Orenstein was the final speaker. And she wrote a book called Cinderella Ate My Daughter, (laughs) kind of saying that the root of all the problems we see with girls in terms of body image or sexualization kind of start at age four with this princess culture. Oh, wow. So I'm sitting there um, thinking about my three-year-old daughter, who at the time was so into princesses, right? So... So many little preschool girls are. They love to dress up and pretend and We've watch We've got the all movies. the costumes. Yes. Yep. So did we. Exactly. <laughs> and I'm thinking here um, as a media scholar and an expert in child development thinking, oh, my gosh, what am I doing to my daughter? Am I destroying her? I don't know. And so then Peggy Ornstein said, well, I actually have no data to back me up at all. This is just what I think. And so I thought, hmm. well, I study children and media. So this would be a really fun idea for a study. Yeah. And so that's kind of where the idea for the study came from. What good can come of this, of our children dressing up in these costumes and and I don't want to say idolizing, but falling in love with these princesses and these characters in these movies that they love so much? So one positive aspect, and it hasn't specifically been looked at with princess culture, but just kind of in general, involves sociodramatic play. Mm-hmm. So this is when kids uh, just pretend, right? So they create yeah. complex storylines and pretend. And I think that often the princess and superhero cultures can really spark imagination. Yeah. And what research reveals is that being able to play <laughs> in that way is related to all sorts of good things like emotion and self-regulation and IQ and getting along with peers and so on. So there really are some some positive outcomes. Yeah, and I, I am loving the age that my children are at right now because so many times I'll hear my name or my wife will hear her name and we respond to them, but they're actually just playing together. One of them is pretending to be mom. One of them is pretending to be dad. 
And uh, I'm at the point where I have to stop myself from interrupting that because it seems like it's really important. It's a beautiful age. I've got kids ranging from zero to 13. And I think the four to five-year-old age is possibly my favorite. Yeah. I just love it. So let's talk about how it affects girls. And then let's talk about how it affects boys because I would assume it affects them in different ways. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, you're right. So the study was done with 240 preschoolers, about age four to start out with. And we looked at how into the princess culture they were. So how often they watched the movies, how often uh, they played with the toys, and how often they identified with certain princesses. And then we looked at their behavior on a number of dimensions a year later to find out what's the effect. So kind of the, the big money finding here is that girls who are really into the princess culture at age four were more gender stereotyped at age five. So kind of mm. in real English, they were more girly. Sure. Yeah. How about, how does it affect boys? Yeah. So, and we can talk a little bit about why being gender stereotyped for girls was is kind of a negative thing, but, but for boys, it was more positive. Hmm. So especially if their parents talked to them about media, they were more pro-social, which means that they were more kind and yeah. willing to help out. They had better body image. And then they were more balanced in terms of gender stereotypes, kind of more androgynous, which sure. is associated with some really great outcomes. Talk to us about the negative aspects of, of that for, for both boys and girls. Yeah. So research suggests that being highly gender stereotyped for either boys or girls tends to be kind of a negative thing. Hmm. Well, there, there are certain aspects of it that you could say are positive. So, so you know, if I'm really girly, quote unquote, you tend to be more kind and nurturing and sweet. Those are all good things. Yeah. Uh, but then what we find is that girls tend to limit themselves in significant ways. So if, if you're highly gender stereotyped, uh, you're less likely to take risks. You are less likely to think you can do well in math or science. Hmm. You're less likely to want to go to college. Um, when you think about who your future spouse is, you rate more importance on their looks and their earning potential. Yeah. Less likely to go explore and experience the world and and so on. It seems so, like there's kind of a confidence issue there then. Yeah, and okay. kind of a, a reliance on, mm-hmm. on holding on to, you know, this is what it means to be a girl and I can't step out of those bounds. And Yeah. And so we, we see a lot of those themes in the princess movies themselves and certainly the earlier ones. Yeah. I feel like they're getting better over time, which is really positive. Yeah. Um, but we're still seeing those effects. And and. In fact, we asked the girls uh, who your favorite princess was. At the time we did the study, uh, Tangled had just come out. So Rapunzel oh, was number yeah. one, uh-huh. but number two was Cinderella, which was one of the earliest princesses. Wow. So we're, we're still seeing kind of those effects. Yeah, that is interesting. And, and as you mentioned, there is kind of a shift going on with the way that these Disney princesses are portrayed and the stories surrounding them. Moana, I felt like it was very empowering to women and to girls uh, and it didn't knock men the way that I felt some of the other Disney movies did. So I I thought a lot about princesses, clearly, over the last yeah, couple of years yeah. here. And I really rejoiced when Moana came out. It's possibly one of my favorite princess movies because it's able to, you know, kind of have that balance between empowering both women and men, I think, in the storyline. And her body type is different than most Disney princesses. Yes. So Absolutely. Um, I 
my daughter right now is 10. So mm-hmm. it's been seven years since I started the thinking about the study. And so she's just kind of on the verge of puberty. And we've really kind of looked at the princesses and how they're portrayed. So if you take somebody like Elsa, mm-hmm. who really embodies what we call the thin ideal, yeah. and what we see all throughout Hollywood, it's really negative for girls and can have pretty negative impacts. But Moana was somebody who's more realistic. Mm-hmm. The other interesting thing is is uh, Disney often takes a strong female character like Merida from Brave, mm-hmm. who has uh, a more typical body shape in the movie. But then when you see her in the merchandise and the dolls and everywhere, they completely change the way that really? she Yeah, they, they really pull in her <sighs> waist and drop her uh, dress to be lower cut and take away oh, her bow and arrow. Boy. You know, so... so I think Disney's getting it right in some significant ways over time, but there's still opportunities for growth. I watched a clip earlier this morning of Gal Gadot, who played Wonder Woman. Mm -hmm. She shared an anecdote about apparently this little boy saw Wonder Woman and then told this director of the film... He, I think he was three years old. He said, "When I wa- when I grow up, I want to be a woman." So <laughs> I thought that was cute, and it, it goes to show you that it's it's very empowering, just in general, and uh, it just happened to feature this female. So talk to us a little bit about superheroes and how this is having an, a, an impact on both girls and boys. Yeah. So when I started the study, I was very interested in princesses. And I thought, well, I need to have something for boys to do. And I have a lot of boys. And so know that the superhero culture is just so predominant in the preschool age group, right? So little boys want to be Spider-Man and Batman and all sorts. And so I thought I need to study superheroes here because we don't really know what's the effect. So something that I'm really interested in is defending behavior. Sure. So that's when you're on the playground at school and you're seeing some kid get beat up. You know, what do you do? Some kids sit there and laugh. Some kids don't do anything. They're bystanders. You have a very small percentage of kids who will go up and defend the victim. So they'll tell the bully to to knock it off. Stop doing that. They'll go get a teacher. They'll intervene. Yeah. I really, really like defenders. And as I thought about the superhero culture, I thought, you know, it's full of defenders. You know, that's what a superhero is. He or she really defends the weak or yeah. those who are in trouble. And so I thought, you know, wouldn't that be nice if preschoolers would pick up on those defending themes? Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of an aim of the superhero study. You kind of wonder what how do- adults would react in similar circumstances. I don't know if you're familiar with that show, What Would You Do? I love that show. Yeah, it's a great show. And it kind of, it not only is it entertaining to see how other people react to those certain situations, but it really makes you think, how would I, as an adult, how would I react in those situations? Would I step in and help that person that's being bullied? Or, you know, would I do the right thing if the if the spotlight was on me? So very interesting. Okay. Yeah. And I think we'd all... Like to hope we would help, but right. probably less likely than we yeah. think we are. What are what are some guidelines for parents on how we can kind of either regulate or how we can kind of steer them in the right direction? Or is that all wrong? Should we just let them choose all their own content? What how what tips can you give us? That's a great question and it's very, very relevant right now. So let's take the the superhero culture what we were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um I didn't really tell you the results, but you know, what we found is for the kids who were into superhero culture, 
they were not better defenders. In fact, they were more aggressive on the playground. So even though parents might think, you know, this is something that I'd really like to put in front of my kid and hope they'll be a better defender, um, they weren't picking up on those themes at all. They're really picking up on the violence. And so you really have to be thoughtful as a parent for what you're showing your child. Yeah. When we think about superheroes, uh, you know, you think about Captain America or Thor or, you know, any of those programs, none of them are made for preschoolers. Yeah. They're all mostly PG-13. Right. But if you go into the theater, you see all these little kids. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. When really the content is not for preschoolers at all. And in fact... They're not picking up on the good things. They're picking up on the violence. Sure. And so, you know, I think a good strategy for parents is to pay attention to the rating system. Um, it is kind of flawed, and so there are multiple websites to go to. I really like commonsensemedia.org mm-hmm. to yeah. find out some more, uh, some better content for parents. And so I think absolutely at younger ages, especially during preschool age, where they're you know, so open to ideas, to be very thoughtful in terms of, of what they watch and then just as they develop, right, uh, give them more autonomy, which is, is more sure. developmentally appropriate. They can make decisions themselves. I notice a difference between the way that children were brought up um, when I was younger versus the way that children are brought up today. Today, the mindset seems to be more along the lines of, okay, not if my child sees this, but when they see it. And how you react to that is so key to what the outcome is, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I've studied media violence for almost 20 years now, and it's not realistic to think that our kids will never be exposed to media violence, right? They will be Mm -hmm. at some point. And so it's how you address that as a parent. And so, you know, one of the strategies that we look at in the research literature is called active monitoring. Mm -hmm. And it's the conversations that you have with your child to help them be a critical viewer of media, which I think is the most important thing you can do as a parent. So when they're seeing something in the media, instead of just being passive and letting it wash over them, they're thinking, right? And they're thinking, how, you know, is that right? Is that not right? And so on. So so let me give you an example uh, with my daughter with princesses, Mm -hmm. right? So, um, we went to see the movie Brave, which I love, as you as you know, and then um, was totally disgusted at then how Disney kind of portrayed her in, in the merchandise sure. and the marketing. And and I thought this was important to talk to my daughter about. And so we looked at the two pictures of, of Merida and how she'd changed and talked to her about which one she liked better and how she felt that might impact her and so on. And And it was really fascinating. We were out at the store, you know, just grocery shopping. And we were in the soup aisle, you know, like Campbell's Soup. Yeah. And for kids, they have, like, pictures on them. Mm -hmm. And there was a picture of Merida on one. And Hannah looked at me, and and she said, Mom, that's the fake Merida, and and I'm not (laughs) buying it. I'm not buying it. Yeah. And I thought that was was really a great example and, and a nice message to say, you know, I'm not buying that. I'm not buying... That particular soup can, but I'm not buying the message. Yeah, that I'm not the buying media into that idea. Telling me, yeah. So if we can really kind of teach our children uh, to not buy into the media so much and to really think about the messages that are being portrayed, I think it's a way for parents to win. 
Sarah, that is such good advice, and I really appreciate your time here on Screen Cleaning this morning. Thanks so much for having me. Her name is Sarah Coyne, and she's an associate professor of human development in the School of Family Life here at Brigham Young University. And uh, we're going to take a a quick break. When we return, we're going to be speaking with our good friends at BYU Sports Nation. This is Screen Cleaning on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. It is the part of the program where we like to head over to our good friends at BYU Sports Nation to find out what's coming up on their program here in just about 11 minutes. And I hope they've got their booties on because it's cold outside. Spencer and Jerem, are you staying warm? Ned? Ned Ryerson? (laughs) Needle nose Ned, Ned the head. Come on, Phil. Yes, we are staying warm, to answer your question. Excellent. friend. Excellent. And we are super excited to discuss the Groundhog Day scenario for BYU basketball. All righty. Lose to a non-St. Zaga and then go up to Spokane and hopefully win again. Yeah. (laughs) So you are predicting that there's a shadow coming. Oh, there's been a shadow. Cast from Gersten Pavilion in L.A. last (laughs) Oh, my goodness. You know, he drops the game they shouldn't have lost. Oh, no. Uh, that was the last place team in the West Coast Conference. Wow. Last really? Place. <sighs> One and nine in Dave, the West Coast Dave, Conference play before last Dave night. Rose weighs in on the loss. <laughs> really? Is that, Thanks, a, Dave. is that a direct quote? <laughs> uh huh. That. Yes. <laughs> and he also said, I'm not sure which is uglier, the stat sheet or the actual game. Ooh. Or my high school girlfriend. Oh, what? Whoa, so, come on, Dave. Do we have to put up with six more weeks of this, or are they going to turn the tide? <laughs> nope. We're going to put up with this for a couple weeks, and then we'll get to Las six Vegas. Six more weeks of winter. <laughs> and then we'll hope that BYU can uh, put together an amazing three-game run in four days. Wow. Wow. For BYU, it's, for BYU to get to the NCAA tournament, it's going to take winning the auto bid in Vegas, more than likely. But, so, Jerem, what if they beat Gonzaga twice and then um, win the semifinal in the West Coast Conference Tournament? What if a volcano erupts below your home? That's, That's a mm, similar yeah. what-if question. Yeah, comparable so, odds. What if? <laughs> so pr- was our voice of a fan we did. Like, the fans that we disagree with, we always make them sound stupid. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, this prognostication coming from our prognosticators at BYU Sports Nation is not good. Mm, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, it's it's disappointing. Yet, you know, BYU has Gonzaga tomorrow. They can win that. They can build some confidence, get a nice win, and then just see where they're at later. But BYU's at-large chance were, chances were probably thin to begin with. They couldn't afford a loss like that last night, and that happened. It would be a similar scenario – as the start of the 2013 BYU football season, where you lose to a terrible Virginia team and then turn around and run hog wild on the Texas Longhorns the wow. following week. Wow. Unexpected. Probably not going to happen. So I'm curious to know, it, you know, as you know, it is Groundhog Day. And is your show going to be lathered with cheesy Groundhog references as much as ours has been? Hopefully. I don't. I don't know if we're going to be on your level. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm on a higher level. Is that what you're saying? Yes. <laughs> yes. The cheese floweth. 
by the Creed. <laughs> by the Creed. The cheese Whiz Overload is on. We did the repeat intro to each hour, by the way. Oh, well played. Yes. It was amazing. Well played. Uh, we're, we, complete uh, with Sonny and Cher and everything. Oh, man. Well, what if there's no tomorrow? I got you, babe. There wasn't one today. <laughs> oh, I, I do want to get to that. I want to know uh, what your favorite line is from the film Groundhog Day. Oh, man. Or That's one of so them. That's so difficult. Yes. That is so difficult. Uh, Jerem's was probably dealing with the, the whole talent situation, right, Jerem? I think so. When he is on his way back to sure. Pittsburgh. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. And the roads are closed. He asks the police officer if there is something available. Mm-hmm. To the extent of, uh, is there a special lane for the talent? <laughs> Did he actually call himself the talent? <laughs> that, apl- that applies to us, so I really like that. Yeah. Well, uh, what about? We're still waiting for someone to call us. Though. What about you, Spencer? Uh, I just like the whole Ned Ryerson scene. Oh yeah. What, I think my favorite Watch line... Out. It's a doozy. That's a great line. <laughs> and it is pretty impressive how they're able to get the inflection and the delivery of those lines to be so consistent. Pretty gnarly. I, yeah. We're not going to do it today, even though I ask for it every year. I want to do one of our segments the exact same segment as the segment before and try to replicate it. Mm-hmm. One of these years we're going to do it. Maybe when Ben's sick. Uh, one of my favorite lines is uh, from Phil. This is one time where television really fails to capture the true excitement of a large squirrel predicting the weather. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my my favorite line involves Ned Ryerson, and I probably should have said it uh, as an intro to you guys, but I love it when he says, I have missed you so much. <laughs> and I won't say the rest of the line, but uh, yeah, I think that is the biggest uh, laugh for me from the film. Oh, my goodness. Of many, many, many laughs. Wow. I first saw it when I was, I think, 11 or 12. And I mean, I thought it was okay, but wow, what a brilliant movie. I was once in the Virgin Islands. I met a girl. We ate lobster, drank pina coladas. That was a pretty good day. Why couldn't I get that day over? And over, and over? <laughs> oh, it's goodness. such a good movie. It's so good. Um, well, and it gets just like the cheese, as you uh, referenced, or you mentioned our show was very full of cheese. Mm-hmm. It, uh, that movie gets better with age. Absolutely. It really does. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, Woodchuck Chuckers, you go and <laughs> have yourselves a wonderful Groundhog Day and a wonderful Groundhog Day show. We Thanks, do that. Punxsutawney Phil. We will do that. <laughs> it's BYU Sports Nation coming up here in just about four and a half minutes, so look forward to it. And uh, as you know, we like to end each show with our panning for good segment. There's good in them dire hills. <laughs> and you know... Today it should come as no surprise what the Panning for Good segment is going to be about. It's rare these days when a film can, when a comedy can come out and really floor you and do it without resorting to crude humor and also be genuinely funny. 
it's just so rare that that happens these days. And uh, I could probably count on a couple of fingers in the past decade how many films fit that bill. But uh, the film that I'm referring to is, of course, Groundhog Day. It's PG. You have one of the strongest comedy scripts ever written, in my opinion. It You leave the movie theater not only being entertained and feeling better about yourself, but how many of these comedies can also, in addition to not being crude and to being genuinely funny, how many other films can also make you rethink the way you live your life? This is a film that is actually it was a, Bill Murray wanted it to be much more philosophical than it ended up being and then it went through a dark horror phase that it was going to be right. and then it finally landed on that perfect tone of right feel good change your life hilarious slapstick and a little bit dramatic in the middle as well yeah and i mean just just on a smaller scale what can i do each day to make it to make to make the most of it, what can I do each day to change things up, to have a little more excitement, to make a difference in somebody else's life? It's rare that you can get a film that can do all of those things, and even after dozens of repeat viewings, it's still just as good as it was the first time. Absolutely. And it goes in the Pennsylvania Movie Hall of Fame for me, from my home state. What really captures that middle part in a, you know, on Sunday, the Eagles are going to be in the Super Bowl. Philadelphia's got plenty of movies over there. Um, and Pittsburgh has plenty of movies over here. But that middle part where I'm at, Groundhog Day just captures it in with a great movie as well. So celebrate the Super Bowl this weekend, but celebrate the film Groundhog Day today, starring Bill Murray, Andy McDowell, and Chris Elliott among others. That's going to do it for Screen Cleaning today. We'll be back next week. Enjoy Super Bowl weekend.